Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Good morning. You know what? It is Friday. Happy Friday, everyone. Poppy is a smart one. She took the day off and there's a (laughs) lot going on, though including the storm clouds for Donald Trump. A new report says the Manhattan DA may soon file criminal charges against the former president in the hush money case. This morning, what prosecutors are offering him before making their move and then bracing for the jobs report. New numbers coming just hours from now that could sway the Fed's fight on inflation. Also a rampage in Germany, a gunman opening fire inside of a church. At least seven have been killed. We have the latest on the ongoing investigation. Also, heading to Iowa, Governor Ron DeSantis is making his first trip to the state today in what could be a major step towards a possible White House run. We are live in Des Moines with what the voters are saying. And are you ready? Well, I guess folks in Hollywood are. Look, you see what I'm talking about. Red carpet ready for the Oscars. Who will take home Hollywood's biggest prize? Seen in this morning starts right now. Everything we just said, it doesn't feel like a Friday, right? I know, it's a very busy Friday. (laughs) It's a very busy Friday. (laughs) So we've been talking a lot about what's possibly going to happen with the former president, but there are a lot of people who are throwing their hats into the ring Unofficially, officially, unofficially. Yeah, and you know, his hat is in the ring and he's got all these investigations facing him, which makes his run all the more unusual. And now we're learning new developments about what is happening with his legal case potentially here in New York. This is something that uh, is a big question about whether or not he is about to potentially be criminally indicted. The New York Times is reporting the Manhattan District Attorney's Office has recently signaled to Trump's lawyers that he will likely face criminal charges for hush money payments to the adult film actress Stormy Daniels. According to the New York Times, quote, prosecutors offered Trump the chance to testify next week before the grand jury that has been hearing evidence in the potential case and that such offers almost always indicate that an indictment is close. All of this, as you remember, goes back to 2016, just days before the election. Trump's longtime attorney and fixer, Michael Cohen, said that Trump directed him to pay $130,000 to Stormy Daniels to keep her quiet about an alleged affair that they had. Trump has repeatedly denied authorizing the payoff and having an affair with Daniels, we should note. Did you know about the $130,000 payment to Stormy Daniels? No, no. to ask Michael Cohen. Michael's my an attorney, and you'll have to ask Michael Cohen. Do you know where he got the money to make that payment? No, I don't know. No. One of the most significant questions of his presidency that he answered there. Michael Cohen, though, says he has the receipts. Personal checks that were actually signed by Trump. Our senior legal affairs correspondent, Paula Reed, is following this story closely for us. Paula, obviously, you know, what we're learning from this is that the Manhattan DA wants to hear from Trump It seems maybe unlikely that he would do so, that an attorney would actually advise their client to go in. What's your sense of what could happen here? 
Yeah, it definitely seems highly unlikely that he will join the parade of high-profile witnesses that we've seen over the past few weeks testifying before this grand jury, which is hearing evidence about whether the former president may have falsified business records when paying Cohen back for that hush money. Now, the fact that this invitation to possibly appear before the grand jury is coming now uh, certainly signals that it's likely their investigation could be wrapping up and an indictment could be coming, but there's no guarantee. Now, in a statement last night, Trump's spokesman uh, dismissed any suggestion of an indictment as, quote, insane and called the whole investigation a, quote, witch hunt. And this is a big development, of course, Paula, but I also think it's important to keep it in perspective because it is kind of this complicated theory here. A lot of it hinges on Michael Cohen, who, as we all know, has gone to prison. He is a convicted uh, felon. He has admitted to lying. So I think a question to be realistic is, is this a strong case? It's the question, Caitlin, because this is certainly not as strong as other possible cases, both at the state and federal level, that could be brought against the former president. I mean, let's take a look. We're talking about conduct that occurred seven years ago. At its core, this is really a paperwork crime that relies on a novel legal theory. And like you said, at the center of this case is Michael Cohen. He is a convicted liar who for years, especially since Trump turned on him, has publicly appeared pretty fixated on the former president and on the idea of him being charged. I mean, even some of Cohen's close associates have told me they really think it would be best if this case is not brought and if Cohen just kind of moved on with his life. But there are also questions about, well, why would a prosecutor bring a case like this if it's not strong, if it's such a long shot? Well, the district attorney, he's facing a lot of political pressure here. But political pressure should not be a basis to bring charges, right? Because the former president, he he dismisses every investigation uh, that he faces as politically motivated. So if you bring a case like this, you know, this indictment against a, a former president and you're not successful, that really could undermine the legitimacy of all these other cases that we're, we've seen that are much stronger, have a much more diverse array of witnesses, a lot more evidence. Yeah, big challenge for prosecutors. Paula Reed, thank you. All right, let's keep uh, let's continue to discuss this now. CNN's senior anchor and analyst, political analyst John Avalon is here, and CNN's senior legal analyst and former federal prosecutor Ellie Honig. Good morning to you. Let's why don't we pick up where these guys left off because we were talking about Michael Cohen. We'll talk about the big picture. Well, Michael Cohen, according to um, my sources, going in on Monday to speak to the grand jury. He has been in he's what 19 times to talk to Bragg's office or Cyrus Vance. Um, when actually he was in the correctional facility. He spoke with Cyrus Vance's office. You don't typically have someone going in that many times if something isn't afoot here. That's correct. And this is an unusual feature, actually, of New York state law, where if you are close to indicting someone, you have to give that person a chance to come into the grand jury and testify. That's certainly not the way it works federally. But yes, this tells us that they're close to the end and that it's highly likely that they will seek an indictment from a grand jury. So everyone asks when, when they read the reporting, the CNN reporting, the New York Times reporting, then what does that mean then? Yeah. What does well, that mean? Let me, let's sort of put it in perspective here. If there's an indictment of the president, it will be a first. It will be historic. It will be monumental. But we also need to keep the perspective here. This will be a state charge brought by a local elected county district attorney. This is not the feds. This is not the Justice Department. The laws that they will be charging here, the New York state laws, are either going to be a misdemeanor. And just for comparison, Shoplifting under $1,000 in New York State is a misdemeanor. No one's going to jail for a misdemeanor or potentially the lowest level of felony, Class E, <clears throat> A through E. I'm telling you the reality yeah. here, John. I see you getting ready, uh-huh. but I'm telling you just these are facts, okay? 
we are looking at a case that is the, going to be best case scenario, the lowest level felony, very well could result in no prison time. Which is insane. And here's why. First of all, uh, this is a, an accusation that uh, a, a, a alleged crime, if they, if they do indict, we need to say this hasn't occurred yet, um, that already sent somebody to jail, Michael Cohen who was lying on Trump's behalf and had a history of doing so. Um, one of the core principles of this country is equal justice under law. The reason this hasn't been brought was for four years, Trump was shielded by the OLC opinion that he couldn't be charged as president. And this is a payoff that was used as hush money that could have swung the outcome of an election. Right? This is not shoplifting. This isn't in the same moral universe as shoplifting. There was an impulse to hide this because it could have impacted the outcome of an American election. So all those reasons are why it matters. It does matter, but also the situation we could be in is where we have a presidential candidate who is running and has said, you know, I'm not going to drop out even if I am indicted, even if this does happen. Could it not potentially help him, though? If you're looking at it through a political lens, yes. someone who, who yes. he likes to portray himself I'm as a murderer. the most investigated oh. president ever, a political yeah. figure ever. This is a, a witch hunt by the Democrats and so by the people who hate Trump. That, I would argue would be politics impacting an outcome, right? Equal justice under law. Don't let anyone play the ref. Yes, I mean, you know, you could argue that Trump's 2024 campaign is partly about trying to intimidate people not to prosecute him for trying to overturn election in addition to other uh, uh, things he's being investigated for. Equal justice under law. Now, Ellie will tell you that people can run for office if they're indicted or even in prison, including president. James Michael Curley, mayor of Boston, yes. I'm going to drop that, was elected from prison. So the only way to stop him from rising again is 14th Amendment, Section 3. Someone who gives aid or comfort to inciting an insurrection. Otherwise, you can run from off. You can run from prison. I just want to say, he posted that he did nothing wrong, um, to your point. Mm -hmm. It's a witch hunt, right? But when you think about this, that will play very well with as you know, the MAGA folks, right? Because you cover the administration. That'll play Especially very well. Especially because it's not a new story. Right. But will it... I, I find that Trump is not getting as much traction as he was at large. With mm -hmm. the MAGA folks, with the CPAC crowd, yes. Mm -hmm. But will that play with a larger crowd, with a, with a bigger electorate in the country? That's my question. It's a, it's a good question. I don't think we know. I also am curious, Elle, if you think he would actually go sit down with them. I mean, that seems incredibly... I've talked yeah. to some of the people in, their, in the Trump legal world... Seems there his attorneys went and met with the DA's office this week, but the idea that he would go in it's, seems unlikely. It's right? very common for attorneys in this situation to go in and meet with prosecutors, try to dissuade them at the last minute from bringing a charge. The chances of Donald Trump taking them up on that offer and going to the grand jury are very, very close to zero. And let's remember, there have been many times in the past impeachment proceedings, congressional hearings where he said, oh, I, I want to testify, but he never actually has. It would be completely self-destructive to Especially do that. Especially Donald Trump. Oh, I, Can you anybody, but it, yes, especially. I mean, it would be fascinating, right? Because he tends to just say it, but uh, I would not wait for him to go into the What would you say, um, because, you know, Michael Cohen is going in on Monday, according to sources. Um, Kellyanne Conway has been in a couple of times. There have been other folks in, in the Trump, um, you know, mm -hmm. orbit who have oh, been picks. in. I think about eight or nine people who, who have been in. Um, if there is an indictment, if there is an indictment, would it be next week, by the end of the month? When would we know? It would be soon. I mean, you are in endgame when you're at the point of inviting the potential defendant to come on in. I, it's hard to put a date on it, but I think, I think we're a matter of weeks, not months. I also do think it's important to understand what are the legal problems with this case and why is this not going to be a slam dunk? First of all, this is old conduct. These payments were six and a half 
years ago. That's going to matter when you're standing in front of a jury and trying to get them to care. It feels like ancient history. Again, we're likely well, not looking... Even though he's shielded by the fact he couldn't be prosecuted as president, according to How also about since January 20th of 2021? That's two years and two, two months Two years, ago. but he's shielded for four years, which is what accounts well, for the gap. And a lot of disagreements. I mean, Alvin Bragg has been at this table. A lot of disagreements yeah. in the office about how to pursue this. And yes. let me add yes. this. Let me add this. The feds across the street, my former office, the Southern District of New York, famously aggressive. They took a pass on this. I write about this. I report mm-hmm. on this in my book. And finally... Let's not be sort of over, overly uh, optimistic or you know, overly glib about Michael Cohen as a witness. Michael Cohen is a deeply flawed witness. Mm-hmm. He's been convicted of perjury. He's been convicted of other frauds. This is a man whose entire public identity is based on how much he personally despises Donald Trump. He will yeah, be- but get in line. I mean, you think about what happened with Michael Cohen. Yeah. Listen, you, it's right. He is a convicted felon or whatever. But everything that Michael Cohen said in his testimony- to Congress has pretty much come true. Everything that he said in news accounts, it has all come true about what but, Donald but Trump is not, not going to leave he's office. He's not meaningfully tested. The Southern District of New York, again, my former office, rejected Michael Cohen. They said, we do not find him credible enough to use. They put that in a filing to a federal judge. Yeah, look, he, 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 he was first known for being Donald Trump's most loyal you know, not consigliere, but sycophant who would defend and, and act as an enforcer. And then when Trump cut him loose... Then he flipped on him. Um, and, and so, you know, I don't, I don't know that, that, you know, it doesn't mean he doesn't know where, where the bodies are buried. But, but look, we will see there are bigger charges. That, that, that's part of the issue sure. here uh, that Trump is facing. But I wouldn't underestimate the significance of this in terms of the outcome of the election. Yeah, he's only one, too, of the people who yeah. have gone in. Correct. Right? Well, and yeah. other investigations. So yes. we have a lot to talk about. And speaking yeah. of cutting up. people loose. <laughs> Goodbye. We've been released. It was great. But, uh... Appreciate it. <laughs> All right. Also new this morning, we have news on that deadly kidnapping of Americans in Mexico. The cartel that is believed to be responsible has issued an alleged, which is alleged apology letter. We're going to tell you what it says. Plus, a historic power grab. Xi Jinping officially awarded an unprecedented third term as China president. China's president. We're live in Beijing. So there's an update this morning to a story that we have been covering closely here on CNN. It's a story of armed kidnapping, that armed kidnapping a Mexican in Mexico that killed two American tourists and a Mexican woman. The cartel, believed to be responsible, has now issued an apology and handed over five of its members to local authorities. CNN obtained a version of the so-called apology letter, which reads in part, the Gulf Cartel Scorpion Group strongly condemns the events of last Friday For this reason, we decided to hand over those directly involved and responsible for the acts who at all times acted under their own determination and in discipline and against the rules in which the Gulf cartel always operates. The official who confirmed the apparent legitimacy of the letter said that they suspect it was issued after the attack brought considerable public attention and scrutiny onto the actions of the cartel. Also this morning, Chinese leader Xi Jinping has secured an unprecedented third term As president, after being essentially rubber-stamped by the nation's political elite, China's one-party parliament reappointed him president for another five years in a very highly choreographed ceremony in Beijing's Great Hall of the People. CNN's Selena Wang is covering all of this live. Selena, I I mean, the vote was 2,952 to zero. I don't think this was exactly a surprise to anyone given this. But the fact that he secured this third term, what this, this level of power looks like for him, this power grab, 
He is still facing a host of challenges, though. Yeah, Caitlin, I mean, this was certainly expected. In China, that role of president, it is largely ceremonial, but it is still symbolic. It's important. It's a reminder that he's got an iron grip over the country. It solidifies his control and it makes him the longest serving head of state of communist China since its founding in 1949. Now, back in 2018, Xi Jinping had scrapped the two term limit on the presidency, meaning he could stay on as head of state for life. But his true power comes from being the head of the party and the military. Those are roles he was already reappointed pointed to at the Communist Party Congress back in October. So really what we saw today was political theater unanimous votes, as you said, from the rubber stamp legislature. Then they got up for a standing ovation. Now at this ongoing big political event, we'll also be seeing reshuffles in leadership roles, state organizations, all of these changes will further increase Xi Jinping's power. So in his next term, he's got a lot of challenges to face at home, including the economy still recovering from harsh years of zero COVID policies. But we should also expect to see increasing Communist Party control at home and abroad this continued assertive, more aggressive foreign policy. Beijing thinks its actions are restoring China's rightful standing in the world as a great power. It's becoming very clear we're not going to see an off-ramp in U.S.-China tensions anytime soon. Xi Jinping's view of the relationship is turning more pessimistic. Earlier this week, Xi Jinping made a rare move by directly calling out the U.S., accusing America of leading a campaign to contain and suppress China. The message to the people here is very much that the U.S. is trying to choke China off. Caitlin. Yeah. Meanwhile, Putin is congratulating Xi on his third term. Selena Wang, thank you for your coverage. This morning, German authorities are investigating the motive behind a shooting at a Jehovah's Witness Kingdom Hall in Hamburg that left at least seven people dead. Witnesses described what they saw. We heard gunshots, and there were 12 continuous shots. We saw people being taken away in black bags. I also heard 12 shots at the Jehovah's Witnesses and then kept away. I saw seriously injured people. Police say they believe there was only one shooter who also found was also found dead inside the building. Also this morning, we have some brand new CNN reporting for you. Sources telling CNN that Russia has been sending U.S. weapons that are captured in Ukraine to Iran. CNN's Natasha Bertrand has this re reporting. Natasha, so um, obviously the U.S. has been sending a lot of weaponry to Ukraine since Russia invaded. What exactly are the Russian forces doing here? Yeah, Caitlin, so what we're told by four different sources is that the Russians have been capturing U.S.-made, U.S.-provided equipment on the battlefield in certain instances and sending that equipment to Iran. Now, these are smaller items. These are things like shoulder-fired missiles, like Javelin anti-tank missiles and Stinger anti-aircraft systems, and also the NATO equivalent, right, because NATO is also providing some of the similar equipment. So they're, they're taking this equipment that sometimes the Ukrainians are forced to leave behind on the battlefield, whether because they are overrun or they simply need to withdraw quickly. And they are sending that, that that equipment in many instances to Iran, likely so that Iran can then reverse engineer that equipment so that they can potentially reproduce it and make their own kind of version. Now, the Russians are doing this because they want Iran to continue to help them in their war in Ukraine, right? This is part of the growing defense partnership that we have seen between Iran and Russia, and it really has intensified over the last year with Iran providing hundreds of drones to Russia, other equipment, and Russia now looking to kind of pay that back to Iran by providing them with these Western uh, types of equipment that, so that the Iranians can basically take them apart and try to reverse engineer them. And have they done this before, reverse engineer Western weapons? 
Yeah, so the Iranians are actually very adept at this. One of their top uh, uh, weapons in their inventory is an anti-tank guided missile that they actually re produced from a, an American anti-tank missile in the 1970s that it really is a key part of their inventory now. They also were able to reproduce uh, an American-made drone that they intercepted in 2011, making their own version of that, which then crossed into Israeli airspace before being shot down in 2018. So they have proven very capable of doing this. And as one expert told me, that could prove very dangerous to, of course, Israel and other uh, allies in the region who are, of course, very concerned about the threat that Iran already poses, Caitlin. Yeah, absolutely. And we're seeing that partnership with Iran and Russia getting even closer. Natasha Bertrand, great reporting. Thank you. Also this morning, New York State is asking major pharmacies to commit to dispensing that abortion pill that comes after what you saw happen in California. We'll tell you how they're putting on the pressure. And Governor Ron DeSantis says tennis star Novak Djokovic should be able to play in Miami despite being unvaccinated. Good politics, we'll discuss. More CNN this morning to come after the break. You see beautiful New York there this morning. Already? I know. We like come in when the sun's not up, so it's like always confusing to me when it's bright when we. (laughs) Okay, anyway, though, there is a lot happening here in New York. New York's governor and the attorney general are now calling on major pharmacy chains to commit to dispensing prescription abortion pills in the state, both in store and through mail. Of course, this comes after we saw what happened in California, where Governor Gavin Newsom announced that his state is going to be ending a $54 million contract with Walgreens after it agreed to stop mailing abortion pills to 21 Republican-led states. Joining us to talk about this is CNN's chief business correspondent, Christine Romans, and CNN anchor and senior political analyst, John Avalon, back here at the desk with us. Hi, guys. This has... This is becoming a really complicated issue. It is all stemming from the Supreme Court decision, yep. and now it is going to be on these states. It's a political mess, and it's a legal mess. They and open you, up a can of worms. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, it just, it, it's a real mess here. And you've got these companies who now are authorized to go through the certification process and be able to dispense this medication. Now they are being threatened by Republican-led states and now threatened by blue states as well for how they're going to handle this. Let me read to you what the New York uh, governor and attorney general said to these pharmacies. Even as access to the medication is under threat elsewhere for political reasons, we remind you that New York's law is simple. Abortion is legal and protected as a fundamental right under state law, and there are no legal barriers to dispensing this drug in New York uh, pharmacies. So they're trying to put the political pressure on these companies who are also feeling political pressure from 20, 21 states. Their attorney generals here who sent a letter saying it is illegal for you to be mailing this medication. There are a lot of uh, challenges to it, and we encourage you not to be sending this medication through the mail or dispensing it in your pharmacy. So it's just a big mess. So where does this, do we even know where this leaves everyone? So where it leaves these drug companies or these pharmacies is going through the certification process with the FDA uh, slowly at this point, right? And trying to figure out with their legal teams what they can do where. It's a state-by-state basis here now. It's a patchwork because of the uh, overturning of Roe v. Wade. I mean, definitionally, once you revert it to the states, and I will remind people that the the pills that they're being discussed are typically would be considered outside the traditional abortion debate about first trimester, second trimester, et cetera. Um, so this is this is a, a more ideological approach by those states. But I will also say uh, that folks who criticized Ron DeSantis, for example, for punishing private companies 
for political stance he didn't like, got to play the same lens when it comes to, you know, liberal states and liberal governors doing the same thing, in this case, against Walgreens. But is it different because this is a health care thing? Th that, that would be the argument, but I still think the broader principle stands. Yeah. I, that's the first thing I thought about. I was like, well, this is, didn't people get upset because Ron DeSantis did something similar, if not yeah, the same Just thing apply the same Disney. standards no matter what political party is involved and we'll be a lot clearer as a country. Well, how does the electorate feel about that, though? Well, look, the, the electorate's been very clear. I mean, you know, beginning with the 2022 midterms, you saw a major backlash against Republicans because of the overturning of Roe. That was clear in the exit polls. You saw ballot referendums that were put up in states, red states like Kentucky and Montana rejected restrictions on abortion. And then most recent Gallup poll this year shows 69% of Americans, 69% say they're dissatisfied with U.S. abortion policy. That's a, that's a super majority. So this issue isn't going away. And, and politically, it's already, it's already cost Republicans. Yeah, it's only at the forefront. I, I do think we should note that CVS and Walgreens have said they do intend to become certified and dispense right. this pill where they can. So this may not even be an issue for them in and New York. One of the issues, exactly, ex or in California, where it, it is legal as well. Legal. But the yeah, issue it's not here like it's is, like Alabama, you where look that's at, a real right, concern. or you look at states like Iowa and uh, Kansas, for example, two states where abortion is legal, right, where this medication is legal, but those attorney generals have asked these companies not to dispense the medication. So I think there are a lot of legal challenges that are coming. There's also a case in Texas that is challenging whether the FDA can even authorize these two drugs. That's a separate case that these legal teams are also will be watching. It's a fraught I'm legal confused. background. There's and one of, one of the reasons it's, it's not fraught just legally but politically is that, is that, you know, at the end of the day, America's politics are usually based upon ideas of freedom. And this has been something Republicans have claimed very effectively. But when it comes to questions of reproductive freedom, uh, and, 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 and being able to reach out beyond the base, there's a core contradiction here that people are confronting now that the, the row has been removed by the court. Overturning row was the beginning of something. That's right. Not the end of something here. And I think you're going to see a, a lot of trouble, especially for companies like this who have to figure out how to thread that needle. We have a very about personal difficulty. It is. About religion in, politi in yep. the politics and in freedoms. We haven't discussed that. That's really the elephant in the room. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, complicated issue. It is. Very John, personal. Christine, thanks for trying to make it less complicated. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're also going to discuss more of this with New York's governor, Kathy Hochul. She's going to join us live in the 8 o'clock hour here. And Florida Governor Ron DeSantis heading to Iowa today. Hmm. Hmm. Things that it's make nice you go, this time hmm. of year in Iowa. Yeah. <laughs> it's terrible <laughs> this time of year in Iowa. CNN is on the ground talking to conservative voters. Some are still standing behind a different Florida resident. I'm a Trump supporter, and if he's not on the ballot, I'm going to write him in. All right, this morning you see Florida Governor Ron DeSantis there. He is maybe moving one step closer to making a potential bid for the White House a reality. Today he is going to be making his first appearance in Iowa, which is, of course, Republicans' first nominating state. He's going to be meeting with state legislator and attending events in Davenport and Des Moines, before he heads to Nevada tomorrow. DeSantis, uh, we should know, has not made a for formal announcement. He's not actually expected to do so until May or June. That is after Florida's legislature finishes its 60-day session and comes to an end. Meanwhile, Governor DeSantis is also inserting himself in the push to bring Serbian tennis star Novak Djokovic to the upcoming Miami Open, even though he is not vaccinated a requirement for foreigners entering the U.S. CNN's Leila Santiago has more from Miami. 
I would run a boat from the Bahamas here for him. I would do that 100%. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis referring to Serbian tennis star Novak Djokovic pushing for the athlete to be allowed to travel to the U.S. for the Miami Open later this month, even though the player is not vaccinated against COVID-19, a requirement. Now calling on President Joe Biden. I asked him to rescind his policy and... Um, and get with the times here. But we think there may be even in his policy an ability to bring Djokovic in by boat. On a question of regarding the vaccination requirement, I refer you to the CDC. They're the ones who uh, who deal with that. According to the CDC, proof of COVID-19 vaccination is required for non-U.S. citizens, non-immigrant passengers arriving from another country by air, though that applies to other forms of travel. Djorkovic has already missed the chance to play at Indian Wells, organizers announcing on Sunday that he had withdrawn from that tournament. On Twitter, the Miami Open hoping for a different fate, saying Novak Djokovic is one of the greatest tennis players of all time and a six-time champion of the Miami Open. We hope he is allowed entry into the country so Floridians have the opportunity to see him compete once again. Look, la last year I did miss both Indian Wells, Miami and all the U.S. Open swings, so... Uh, it wouldn't be the first time if it happened. And it's certainly not the first time DeSantis has fought mandates on COVID vaccines. We're not doing vaccine passports in Florida. That, it's, it's, not, it's not necessary. Look, Florida has to lead on all this stuff. I think we've figured that out. Touting his response to the pandemic in speeches. When common sense suddenly became an uncommon virtue, Florida was a refuge of sanity. And now book tour appearances. I think the fact that Florida came in and put the kibosh on those passports very early uh, really, really killed those ideas in the crib. That could all be part of a pitch to Republican primary voters for a possible presidential campaign. Layla Santiago, CNN, Miami. Well, TikTok CEO on the offense ahead of a highly anticipated hearing on Capitol Hill. We have new details about his behind-the-scenes conversations with lawmakers. Hmm. Can't wait to hear that. March Madness also is right around the corner. We are talking brackets and Selection Sunday ahead. Gosh, that gives me angina every year. Why? Because I don't know how to do it, and I always lose. You just pick it up. <laughs> just Google. All right, we are just one week away from the first round of the men's NCAA tournament. The March Madness is already underway in several of the conference tournaments. After reaching last year's national championship game, North Carolina was ranked number one going into this season. But now the Tar Heels may not even make it into the big dance. Virginia beat UNC 68-59 in the ACC tournament quarterfinals last night. The Tar Heels now look like they will become the first preseason number one ever, ever, to miss the tournament. We're going to find out for sure on Selection Sunday. The entire 68-team field is going to be announced. Alabama is going to be in it. I just want to show you, ever. Ever. <laughs> it's kind of crazy. You're number one going in. Now you're not even going to make the tournament. Let's talk about TikTok and its CEO going on the offensive as threats of a potential ban grow more real. According to Forbes, Shu Chu... Xiao Chu has been busy on Capitol Hill meeting with lawmakers ahead of a highly anticipated testimony before the House Energy and Commerce Committee in two weeks. One of those lawmakers was, Congress, was Congresswoman Lori Traian of Massachusetts. She told Forbes, quote, there were frank conversations around the harms that he knows exists and described their meeting as, quote, a more honest exchange than any 
I've had with other American CEOs. Here now to discuss CNN media analyst and Axios media reporter Sarah Fisher. Good morning to you. How are you? Good morning. So what are they hoping? Did I say it? Shao Chu? I think it's Shao Chu. Shao Chu. What are they hoping to accomplish with these uh, ahead of these hearings? So you have part of the government, the Committee for Foreign Investment in the U.S., talking to TikTok about a deal, a national security deal, to let them remain here in the U.S., either through an IPO one day or from selling. But lawmakers feel like that's not happening soon enough. And so what they're trying to do is possibly introduce legislation that would empower either the Commerce Department or President Biden to take action on TikTok sooner if that investigation or if that agreement with Scythius doesn't happen in time. They want to understand how TikTok is using user data, where it's being stored, and if there's anything that they're doing to advance the CCP's goals. For example, are they limiting hashtags or videos from being distributed that might be you know, negative about China? Or are they meddling in our U.S. politics by elevating certain content? That's the type of things that lawmakers want to know. But what are the chances of this actually becoming law, getting traction? Because there is so much skepticism on Capitol Hill. This kind of feels like a charm offensive, essentially, before he is going to go before them. I think it's on March 23rd. And obviously, they are going to grill him. This is a politically sensitive issue. It's becoming more at the forefront of all of these issues. It's a great question. I do think that his Washington campaign has been pretty effective. If you listen to him, he's very charming. He's not a Chinese CEO with a thick, heavy accent. He went to Harvard. He understands U.S. politics. He understands Capitol Hill. So it's working when he's going and talking to lawmakers. But I, to your point, do think that lawmakers are going to go pretty hard on him because politics loves to rail on big tech. Whatever priority that you are, if it's an opportunity to show that you are going to be tough on China, these lawmakers are going to take it. Yeah, but do they actually do something? They love to rail on it. They don't necessarily love to actually do something about it. To that point, we've never passed a national privacy law in the U.S. Like, we have zero. And that's because lawmakers, this should be so easy to do, cannot get on the same page to your point, Caitlin. I want to talk to you about what's happening uh, with Fox because we have the the CEO, the Fox Corporation CEO, Lachlan Murdoch, dismissing these revelations from Dominion's defamation case. He's calling them, and I quote, noise yesterday. This was uh, during the Morgan Stanley's technology, media, and telecom conference. He said, quote, this, he said this after we learned that his dad, uh, Rupert Murdoch, acknowledged during his deposition that some Fox News anchors endorsed false claims the 2020 election was stolen. So he's saying, this is noise. What do you think? What do you make of this? Is it noise to him? Lachlan Murdoch has a lot on his plate. You know, he's a chairman at News Corp. He's the CEO of Fox Corp. Think about all the assets and all the things he's controlling underneath it. That's everything from World Cup rights at Fox Sports and Big Ten and signing Tom Brady to a publishing arm and hundreds of newspapers around the world in a real estate division. So, yes, to him, what's happening with Fox News is like a teeny little part of his empire. But this is kind of his playbook, Don. You know, I had an interview with him last year, and that's exactly what he said when I asked him about pushback, about polarization on Fox he said it was just noise, politics, et cetera. Even $1.6 billion, that's noise? Well, that's... The reputation of the network? That is problematic. And the other thing that's problematic is, again, Lachlan Murdoch, think about him. He's a shareholder of two public companies, and he controls a lot of them. He definitely wants investors to be happy with this company. If they're shelling out $1.6 billion or more on a defamation suit, when they could use that money towards hiring 10 more Tom Brady's, of course, that's going to be wearing on the company. But of course, from a reputation perspective, I can't say this isn't damaging. Yeah. And we don't know that the $1.6 billion will actually happen. We'll be watching it, though. Sarah Fisher, thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Sarah. Okay, also this morning, we're talking about Starbucks. If you're drinking some right now, they have just won a major legal victory against their employer. CNN actually spoke to several of them as they returned to work. We'll tell you what they said. 
And the Manhattan District Attorney's Office signaling that the former president could soon face criminal charges over hush money payments. More CNN this morning to come after the break. Starbucks must reinstate employees at Buffalo area stores after a judge ruled the company displayed, quote, egregious and widespread misconduct for firing employees who were simply trying to unionize. CNN's Vanessa Kavich spoke with some of the workers who were impacted. Watch. How is it for you being here today? Every time I come to this store, and it's only been about four times since I've been firing, fired, uh, it's been very emotional. On April 1st last year, Angel Krempa was fired from her barista job at this Starbucks in Buffalo, New York. Starbucks says she was fired for violating the company's policies. Krempa says it was retaliation. Why do you think you were fired? I think that they illegally fired me because I was leading the union effort at this store. Last week, a judge agreed. In a 218-page ruling, a National Labor Relations Board judge said Starbucks displayed, quote, egregious and widespread misconduct to employees unionizing at 21 locations in the Buffalo area. Several workers, including Krempa, must be reinstated, according to the judge's order. Do you want to go back and work here again? I would love to come back and work here again. It's the best job that I ever had. Starbucks said the order is inappropriate and are considering all options to obtain further legal review. Since the success of the first union in Buffalo in 2021, there are now 280 unionized stores across the U.S. To date, Starbucks Workers United says it's filed 600 charges against the coffee giant for alleged federal labor violations and illegal firings. And Starbucks has filed nearly 100 unfair labor practice charges against the union for failing to bargain in good faith. Howard Schultz, who is leading the company until he steps down in April, spoke to Poppy Harlow last month. If a de minimis group of people, which now is about 300 stores, file for a petition to be unionized, they have a right to do so. But we as a company have a right also to say we have a different vision that is better, more dynamic, and we have a history to prove it. But Starbucks barista Michelle Eisen and shift supervisor Gianna Reeve disagreed. They were some of the first employees to organize, calling for a seat at the table, to have a say in health and safety policies, seniority pay, and staffing levels. I do think it was the only way to make our voice heard. Both women say they were retaliated against for union organizing. I remember days of just nonstop surveillance on the floor, um, retaliation where I would no longer be given shift supervisor positions in my location. Why stay? And I was presented with this option of working from the inside with my coworkers to make this company a better place, to be a part of building the policies and the safety procedures that would protect me. And now Starbucks must compensate Reeve and Eisen for lost wages, according to the judge's order. It's a very turbulent thing in your mind. For Krempa, she was out of a job for six months after she was fired by the company. She says she almost lost her home and went into debt. A return to Starbucks, the highest paying job she's had, would help her get back on her feet. How will you feel if you get that opportunity to step back in there, put on your apron and start being a Starbucks employee again? My aprons are still hanging in the same spot that they were left in on April 1st of last year, waiting for me to put them back on. And I'm ready to take it off that hook and put it back on and walk in and just smile at my coworkers and be like, I'm back, I'm here, like we did it.
And another win for the union. Howard Schultz has agreed to testify in front of the Senate about these very issues. He's expected to be grilled about everything you just heard right there. And what the workers want to hear from him is some accountability. They want him to admit that they were union busting and they want them ultimately to bargain and negotiate with these unions. Another big thing that they talked about was Howard Schultz's legacy. It's obviously Starbucks and the success of the company, but they believe that by coming to the table, working with the unions, that would only make his legacy greater. Of course, Howard Schultz, not a fan of unions. This is all going to play out in the next couple months. There's a new CEO stepping in, so that could change the game. But Howard Schultz, one of his last acts, will be testifying before the Senate before he leaves his job as CEO about this very issue that's been really important to these workers for a year and a half now. And we'll yeah. be watching. You'll be covering it. You know, Poppy's very interested. Yeah. In this. She's interviewed him. Yeah, exactly. And if he had not said he would show up, Bernie Sanders wanted to subpoena him. So yeah. like, there would have been a, a subpoena coming for sure. Yeah. Thank you, Very Vanessa. Important. Thank you. Appreciate it. CNN This Morning continues right now. The president of the United States thus wrote a personal check for the payment of hush money as part of a criminal scheme to violate campaign finance laws. Good morning. Can you imagine, though, again, listen, we don't know what's going to happen if there is going to be an indictment. They're saying it's pointing that way, but no one knows. But can you imagine having a former president indicted? It'd be the first time we ever had a former president be indicted. That is a talk. That is what everyone is talking about. Good morning, everyone. Poppy is off today. The testimony that you just saw, that was four years ago from Michael Cohen. But now, will this be the case that finally sticks against the former president, Donald Trump. A new report suggests that criminal charges could be on the way over hush money payments to adult film actress Stormy Daniels. Plus this morning, we're also tracking a violent Mexican drug cartel that has now written an alleged apology letter saying sorry for the deadly kidnapping of four Americans that killed two of them. Did they actually turn over their own gunmen? We'll investigate. New trouble for Tiger Woods. His ex-girlfriend is now suing and trying to tear up a non-disclosure agreement. We're going to discuss all of that, but we're going to begin with this story that we told you right off the top here. Donald Trump, hush money, and a potential indictment that could be coming soon. The New York Times is reporting that the district attorney's office here in Manhattan is signaling Trump will likely face criminal charges over hush money payments to the adult film actress Stormy Daniels. But this is not a slam dunk. The case could pose a big challenge for prosecutors. The Times reports the former president was told that he could appear before a Manhattan grand jury next week if he wishes to testify, a strong indication that an indictment could soon follow. Trump has repeatedly denied having an affair with Stormy Daniels, and he denies telling his longtime fixer, Michael Cohen, to buy her silence for $130,000 right before the 2016 presidential election. But Cohen insists that he has the receipts, personal checks signed by the former president to reimburse him. Our senior legal affairs correspondent is Paula Reed. She's following this story for us this morning in Washington. Good morning to you. The DA is giving Trump the chance to testify. Do you think he'll take it? 
I do not, Don. We know that his lawyers have recently met with the district attorney and they're concerned because we're seeing this uptick in activity in this investigation. This probe has been going on for about five years, but in recent weeks, we've suddenly seen this parade of high-profile witnesses, close associates of the former president, like Kellyanne Conway and Hope Hicks, going to testify before this grand jury. I do not think it is likely that the former president will join uh, that parade of witnesses going before the grand jury. In a statement last night, a spokesperson for the former president president dismissed this whole thing as, quote, insane. But the fact that the invitation has been extended signals that this investigation is likely wrapping up and that an indictment is possible. So, Paula, this is obviously a major development, but it's a complicated legal theory that the Manhattan District Attorney is trying to apply here. There are a lot of lot hinges on Trump's former attorney, Michael Cohen, uh, who has been convicted, right, and has served time. Mm -hmm. So, is it a strong case or does anyone even know at this point? Look, we know a lot about this, right? Because this case has been out there for years. Some people, some entities have been investigated. Some have been charged. So we do know a lot of the basic facts of this case. Look, Don, it's a fact. This conduct is approximately seven years old. At the core, this is a paperwork crime that would have to be prosecuted on a pretty novel legal theory in New York. And the witness at the center of all this is Michael Cohen. And Don, you know, you've interviewed Cohen. You've spoken with him. Every time he speaks in public, the issue of the former president comes up and he appears pretty arguably fixated on former President Trump being charged. And any good defense attorney would seize on that and the fact that he is a convicted liar to try to undermine his credibility. And you really need a credible witness to support a case like this. So the larger question is, well, why is the district attorney digging back into this now? We know that he's under a lot of political pressure. It's always possible that they have unearthed some additional evidence. But based on what we know now, this is not the strongest case that the former president is possibly facing as compared to something like down in Georgia, where they're looking into his efforts to interfere with the election outcome there. You have multiple witnesses. You have recordings. You have documents. Something like that, even though former president's attorneys will admit they are much more concerned about. Yeah. But he did go to jail for actually brokering this deal. You know, you see what I'm saying? He, he went... <laughs> He, he had a lot of legal problems, personal yeah. legal problems with the IRS, with his business dealings, yeah. beyond just this hush yeah. money payment. And I think intelligent minds can disagree uh, whether the National Enquirer right, did not get enough accountability for this. But uh, again, at this point, it's just about the case against the former president, and it is not terribly strong based on the facts that we know. But of course, we don't know everything. Yeah. Right on. Thank you, Paula. Speaking of the 2024 race this morning, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is going to Iowa amid expectations that he is going to be running for president potentially in 2024, something he has not announced yet. His first visit, visit to the GOP's first nominating state is coming months ahead of his expected potential launch. That is something that's not expected to happen until at least the end of the legislature session in Florida. But Ron DeSantis is already polling in the top tier, second so far only in several of them to former President Trump. CNN's Jeff Zeleny is live in Des Moines, Iowa this morning. Jeff, I know you've been speaking with a bunch of voters on the ground, and this has kind of been the question right now. Is these former Trump voters, do they still want to stay with Trump? Do they like DeSantis? What are you hearing from them? 
Well, good morning, Caitlin. That is exactly the uh, sort of the issue, the dilemma that many Republicans here in Iowa have. We've been talking to them all week long, and there is high anticipation for the Florida governor to make his first trip here to Iowa. He is uh, going to be speaking in Davenport, Iowa, in the eastern edge of the state, then coming here to Des Moines. Only two public appearances, but behind the scenes, I am told he's going to be having several meetings with Republican uh, lawmakers, some top influential Republicans here. So we're heading from a soft launch, a book tour, to an actual exploration for president. It's not official, of course. He'll be doing that in May or June, we are told. But talking to those critical voters here, the ones who have the earliest voice in the Republican nominating contest, they are deciding to choose a Republican alternative or stick with Donald Trump. Take a listen to what we found. All right. In Iowa, breakfast is served with the hearty side of politics. Welcome to the West Side Conservatives. In less than a year, these Republicans will help start the 2024 presidential contest. Yet talk has already turned to the end of the campaign, revolving around one question above all. We like him. The question is, can he win? He, of course, is Donald Trump, who remains at the center of the conversation at a regular gathering of loyal conservatives that Kim Schmidt presides over. Right now, he's closer to getting that majority probably in the party than anyone else. but. We, it didn't work last time, and we're concerned about that. A clear sense of Trump fatigue has set in among many Republicans, but not Terry Pierce. He still proudly wears his Make America Great Again hat and believes to his core the former president can win again. I think Donald Trump is the only one that can lead us back to where we were in 2020. Others are more blunt. I'm a Trump supporter, and if he's not on the ballot, I'm going to write him in. So voters there often really reveal something about the mindset of the electorate. And right there, the voters said, if he's not on the ballot, I will write him in. Of course, that is a dilemma facing Republicans. What if Donald Trump does not win? What does he do? Of course, uh, that is a central question playing out. Will Republicans support the ultimate nominee? But that is getting ahead of ourselves. Right now, we are at the beginning of the uh, phase of the presidential campaign. And one other thing I picked up, certainly, this is not a two-man race. We should point out the fact that uh, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley campaigning here uh, more than other candidates. And Republicans, the bottom line is they're in a couple camps. You're either with Donald Trump and believe that he is the one who can restore the party, win back the White House, or you were looking for an alternative. And yes, the Florida governor is at the top of the list for many people now. They want to see him. But there are also many other choices. The Iowa caucuses have a long storied history of humbling frontrunners and and uh, a sort of a rising or elevating other candidates. So that is really the issue here. Uh, when the Florida governor comes, he has meetings at the Iowa Capitol here uh, behind me later today. This is his first sort of soft appearance, but has many uh, more stops and visits to do. And voters want to hear from him and to see if he can live up to all the hype. Yeah, Caitlin. that's a really good point. We don't actually know where this is going, so luckily you were talking to the voters to find out. Right. Jeff, thank you so much. I want to bring in Alyssa Farah Griffin, CNN's political commentator and the former White House communications director under former President Trump. Jeff makes a really good point there, that yes, we are focusing on where DeSantis is going because he's in Iowa today, he's going to Nevada later, but Trump's going to be in Iowa on Monday. Nikki Haley has been all over the state. Asa Hutchinson, who's considering a run, has also been there. 
Um, Who's going to be on a, a little be bit? On, a little bit later. Everyone wants to see DeSantis and Trump. DeSantis, but there are a lot of it's, it's early, and there are a lot know. of folks. It's so can. early. I would just remind folks that at this time in 2015, ahead of 2016, Jeb Bush was the unequivocal front runner. So right. that speaks to could Trump drag and end up not doing as well? Could DeSantis peak? Sure, but a lot of early polling, which I'm skeptical of in this era, new Emerson poll, has Trump massively outperforming uh, DeSantis at this point. I think until he's a formally announced candidate, it's hard to even kind of see what that head-to-head is going to look like. I also anticipate there's going to be other candidates who get into the race, potential former governors or current governors that may get in. Yeah. It's anyone's race at this time. Can we talk about uh, this possible indictment? Not a slam dunk. Everyone's like, is it coming? Is it coming? We don't know for sure. But that's where they said the winds are heading that way. What's What's your response? This, you know, not not a lawyer. This is probably the case that Trump's least afraid of, um, of the plethora of lawsuits of different investigations he's facing, two within the Department of Justice, the Jean Carroll case, the Fulton County case. This is one that their Trump world's prepared to hit back if it goes the way that we're anticipating to say this is the this is the liberals still trying to undo the 2016 election. This is seven years ago. This is a weak campaign finance case. So I don't know that I think this is some kind of a slam dunk. My other caution is this. Trump's usually emboldened when he looks like he's under attack. Um, as we saw after the Mar-a-Lago raid, even really mainstream Republicans, the Dan Crenshaws, the Marco Rubio kind, Rubio kind of rallied around Donald Trump saying, this is unprecedented, this is an overstep of justice. I anticipate you may see this. They said he wasn't going to run until, I I don't know if that's true, but remember they said he wasn't going to run until that raid happened. And then this sort of emboldened him, like, I'm going to definitely do it And it it emboldens his base because he he positions himself, you know, I am your retribution. I am taking these spears and arrows for you. I think it honestly may help him. Doesn't mean justice shouldn't be served, but something like this is hardly going to be Trump's undoing. Yeah, I think he was always going to run, but it, it, it was a rallying cry that he used at the time. But you just mentioned something that is really interesting, which is there are other governors that might get in this race. Ron DeSantis, clearly not the only one. Asa Hutchinson's a former governor. But Glenn Youngkin in Virginia is also someone that people have been watching. He was on CNN because he really got to his office using channeling anger over children's education and what that looked like. He was on CNN last night doing a town hall on education. He had this answer um, about transgender students. Governor Yunkin, your transgender model policies require that students play on the sports teams and use the restrooms that correspond with their sex assigned at birth. Look at me. I am a transgender man. Do you really think that the girls in my high school would feel comfortable sharing a restroom with me? Yep. So first of all, Nico, thank you for again asking the question and being here tonight. We need gender neutral bathrooms. And so people can use a bathroom that they in fact are comfortable with. I think sports are very clear. And I don't think it's controversial. I don't think that biological boys should be playing sports with biological girls. I was really fascinated by the whole town hall, but what did you make of that answer? So this issue, kind of some of the, the rights war with the transgender community is um, you see how overblown it is when you put a face to that community. Um, I, I, I've cautioned this. The culture wars are animating for the base, but they are so destructive in a general election. There's a, there are clear policy answers that could you know, could deal with the issues of how do we deal with bathrooms? How do we deal with sports? But um, Glenn Young is someone who could be very formidable. He was winning when he was talking about, you know, getting kids back in the classroom after COVID, education choice. I think these issues are a lot more dicey because they impact families and they see their families in the faces of those people that are targeted. Yeah. It was good to, it was actually good to hear from having a transgender student there. As adults, 
it's easier in, in New York City, as you know, we all live here. There are gender-neutral bathrooms, right? It's tougher probably in schools, mm. but usually it's just a gender-neutral bathroom, and maybe there's a common space where everyone goes to wash their hands, which is a, a, probably a good solution in most places. It's tough simple, in schools. Right. Yeah. It seems yeah. simple. Yeah. Thank you. Good Thank to you. see you. Good to see you. A lot of topics. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Alyssa. So in the hot seat, Norfolk Southern CEO Alan Shaw grilled by a bipartisan group of senators over the train derailment last month in East Palestine, Ohio. I want to begin today by expressing how deeply sorry I am for the impact this derailment has had on the residents of East Palestine and the surrounding communities. The February 3rd train derailment resulted in the release of toxic chemicals into the air, water, and soil, leaving residents fearful it is not safe to stay in their homes. Norfolk Southern says it has given $21 million already to help East Palestine. Senators pressed Shaw to commit more funds and resources to the community, particularly for health care. You talked about covering the needs of the people of East Palestine. Does that include paying for their health care needs? all of their health care needs. Senator, we're going to do what's right for the citizens of it. What's right is to cover their health care needs. Will you do that? Everything is on the table, sir. Now, there was a really remarkable moment as this hearing was going on. Over an hour into Shaw's testimony, this happened. Mr. Shaw, the news is reporting that there's just been a significant derailment in Alabama of one of your trains. I certainly hope that all of your team and the Anybody in the vicinity um, is safe and well. That was another Norfolk train derailment, this time in my home state, Calhoun County, Alabama. It's northeast, about 80 miles of Birmingham, Alabama. That happened at about 6.45 a.m., the day that the CEO was testifying. Crews were seen riding overturned train cars, and initial reports indicate so far that about 30 cars ultimately derailed so far, though, no reports of injuries, no reports of toxic leaks. Those are two really important details. But new this morning, Norfolk Southern said that it did find loose wheels on a series of the rail cars that were involved in the separate derailment that happened in Springfield, Ohio, last week. So what is behind all of this? CNN's Ryan Young is live in Calhoun County, Alabama, at the scene of that derailment that happened yesterday. Ryan, it's just remarkable that we keep talking about this and the fact that this happened just hours before the CEO was testifying before Congress. Yeah, Caitlin, when you think about this here in Calhoun County, you can see the train just behind us. We've been able to get extremely close to it. Luckily, this was in an area that's pretty remote, and there's almost a one-lane road that leads to this location. You can see that train right now that rail workers will be working to ride up just a little later on. And at some point, they'll be able to move in and move some of this heavy machinery in to move some of these trains back. Um, let's take a look from above. Even though it's raining here right now, we do have our eye in the sky, and that gives us a chance to look at this derailment. You can see from above just the destruction that was created here. Like you said before, luckily the residents that are near here are not affected by this. But look at that destruction, and look at the machinery that they have to bring in to move these trains back onto the track at some point. They, now, they brought new tracks in so they can kind of fix this, and you can see the wood line right there. Um, we are about a mile away from any um, heavy residential area. But at the same time, you understand why America is focused on this right now, because when you see a derailment like this, you're concerned about the folks who live nearby, especially after what happened in Ohio. 
But look at that destruction. And of course, we need to figure out from the NTSB exactly what caused this. So the question here now is, what led up to this crash right before that CEO was talking? You have Norfolk Southern and their operations here now trying to put this together. All the hotels in this area are actually full with workers. We'll be back out here, obviously, at first light like we are right now to start putting this back together. But it's something to see, especially from the sky, when you see those trains uh, derailed and those uh, containers there. So we've been able to make it to this location. Hopefully we'll be able to talk to investigators a little later this afternoon to figure out exactly what happened here. Yeah, it is amazing to be able to see that CNN's drone going over those train cars that derailed about 30 of them. It's live. Yeah, yeah, this is, the drone is actually flying over it right now. And Ryan, here's my question on this, is, is it feels like we are hearing more and more about these derailments, you know, I understand why people are concerned because they see what happens in East Palestine and they're worried it's going to happen because there are so many places just like this in Calhoun County where they have a train that runs through their backyard or their neighborhood. And so is it a pattern? Is it happening more often or are we just paying attention more, Ryan? Well, that that is the scary part. And you know this. uh, People who live near train tracks sort of have this love-hate relationship with it, right? (laughs) You live in your house. You get to the point where you don't even hear the train go by anymore. And everyone knows that they have to wait for some of these trains to pull through. They're also concerned, though, especially after what happened in Ohio, about their livelihood because nobody wants to have one of these trains derail near their home with any sort of toxic chemicals or anything on board like that. Luckily, in this case, we don't have that situation. And look, we had to work our way back this location and then get the drone up in the air for you to even be able to see it because it's so rural in this location. Then you add on the fact that there's all this rain, you're hoping investigators can get back there and figure out, was this a malfunction? Did a wheel come off? Did something dart out in front of the road and make the uh, engineer have to slam on the brake? We don't have any of that uh, sort of information right now, but obviously for these communities that live right next to these train tracks, this is some of the most important news coverage they can have because they want to know what's going on with these trains. Yeah, absolutely. We do too. Brian Young, thank you for being there. Let us know what you find out. All right, also this morning, Russia, we're learning, launched a total of 95 missiles across Ukraine over just the last day alone. We brought you the story yesterday. Now we're getting a bigger look, a better assessment of the damage. The former Defense Secretary Mark Esper is going to join us to talk about his view next. And later, an alleged apology letter from the Mexican cartel after that deadly kidnapping of American citizens will tell you what it says. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. So new this morning, nearly half a million people are without power in Ukraine's second largest city. That's Kharkiv. Uh, after Moscow launched 95 missiles over the past 24 hours, killing at least six people in Lviv. Ukrainian officials say Russia has been targeting the energy grid like this power plant in Kyiv. Let's bring in now Mark Esper, the former defense secretary under President Donald Trump. Thank you for joining us, sir. The Ukrainian energy minister says that Russia used uh, a they're using a new tactic in this very large scale uh, offensive against um, Ukraine's Ukrainians. What did this tell you about the strategy right now? When they're doing all of these cities, they seem to be bombarding them. The strategy seems to be ramping up. Well, the sense is what was it? the, The attack in the last 24, 48 hours was retribution for an attack allegedly committed by the Ukrainians within Russia. And so the, uh, the Kremlin's response was to hit them hard with 95-plus missiles, to use a range of ballistic missiles, hypersonics, crews, drones. 
And um, what you find out when you dig a little bit deeper is that they're actually using air defense missiles and anti-ship missiles to attack Ukraine's infrastructure. And it, and it tells you that their, their stocks seem to be fairly depleted. Now, kudos to the Ukrainians. It looks like their energy infrastructure is back online today. And it just shows you the, shows you the resilience of the Ukrainian people when it comes to these unwarranted attacks on their infrastructure. But when it comes to these hypersonic missiles that they're using, you know, they used, I think it's six so far in this latest attack. They have barely used anything like that in the entire last year. So what does it say to you that they're ramping up hypersonic missiles, but also the concern, as we were talking to John Carrillo yesterday, Ukraine has nothing that can knock those out of the sky. Right. Look, they're very hard to defeat. They, they travel at five times the speed of sound, up to 10 times the speed of sound. Very difficult to knock out of the air. It's, it's a challenge that we in the United States military were looking at as well, because we know that China is also developing a hypersonic weapons. So uh, it's going to remain a challenge. The fact that they haven't used more of them is surprising. But this, again, calls for the need to Ukraine to get the air defenses it needs. I don't think they still have Patriot air defense systems. Not that Patriot could defeat hypersonics, but still, there's much more we need to give and provide the Ukrainians in order to beat back the Russian assaults. Yeah. Mm. Would that be problematic, though, for America, for NATO, if by giving them that, won't they, I guess, well, Putin will see it as any act of aggression, anything that NATO does is an act of aggression anyway. Well, we've already committed to providing Patriot. We actually have Ukrainian soldiers uh, reportedly in Oklahoma training on the system, but it takes time to train. It takes time to deliver the systems. Uh, another European allies providing systems as well. But again, these were things that the Ukrainians were asking for months and months ago. And it's a shame that they, they don't have them yet. Same goes for tanks and F-16s. But on the F-16s, you know, I'm fascinated by this because we are seeing a real split between the U.S. and Ukraine on this. Because President Biden is saying they've done the assessment. They don't think Ukraine needs them. Zelensky is telling Wolf they could be make or break to the outcome of the war, that they at least want to have the Ukrainian pilots training on them. Is it a mistake for the U.S. not to do it, on, in your view? Well, sure it is. Uh, we, you know, President Biden said a few weeks ago, no, 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 no. Uh, we now understand that Ukrainian pilots are being evaluated here in the United States to do so. There were also reports coming out of the Munich Security Conference that the United States top general in Europe, uh, Chris Cavoli, uh, Supreme Ally Commander, told lawmakers that, yes, F-16s would make a difference for the Ukrainians. And it's, it's obvious. They need a platform to conduct uh, uh, strikes uh, against uh, Russian elements in Ukraine. It would very much help with a Ukrainian counteroffensive that hopefully will be launched sometime in the coming months. But sure, they need advanced fighter aircraft. Secretary, this is something that's very disturbing that we're, here, we're hearing coming out of the war. We have new reporting here at CNN that Russia has been sending U.S. weapons captured in Ukraine to Iran. How dangerous could that be? Well, look, first of all, absolutely not surprised by this. Uh, I suspect, frankly, that the Chinese have some as well, um, because this is what happens in warfare. Weapons get le left on the battlefield. A unit gets overrun. They scoop them up. And this becomes uh, important intelligence collection materials for our adversaries. Now, look, the good news is um, these things are hard to re-engineer. It's, it's not like you're re-engineering a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And we also build design into our systems, anti-tampering and other type of um, mechanisms to defeat anybody trying to take them apart and re-engineer them. But that said, we, uh, you know, we should be uh, uh, trying to find out what the Iranians have and how long it might take, to, take them to get, gain some information about how we design our own systems and how they might go about countering them. Mark, while we have you here, the New York Times is reporting that prosecutors are signaling criminal charges, maybe likely for Trump, that he might be indicted here in New York in this case that's been ongoing. He has said that even if he's indicted, he's not going to drop out of the presidential race. 
Do you think if he's indicted that he should drop out of the race? Uh, you know, I don't know. I, I have not been following all these cases. He has, what, a half or dozen so uh, investigations into him. Uh, I'm not surprised that he's not going to drop out. I assume he's going to run all the way till the end, and, and uh, we'll see how that plays out. But you don't think he should run, right? You've said that before. <laughs> well, I've said I hope he doesn't run, and I, I actually hope uh, uh, we see a new generation of leaders in, re- in the Republican Party, and I think on both sides of the, of the ledger, we need a new generation of leaders. All right. Former Secretary of well, Esper. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right. Also this morning, Tiger Woods in the sports world, his ex-girlfriend has filed a lawsuit against Tiger Woods and his trust. We'll tell you why next. He's the most unlucky in love. Tiger Woods' ex-girlfriend has now filed two separate complaints after their six-year relationship ended. The first is a complaint filed against a trust that is owned by Tiger Woods. In it, Erica Herman claims that the pair had an oral agreement that allowed her to live in a home that was owned by the trust for five more years with all expenses paid. She says that Woods broke that agreement and locked her out of the home, and she's suing for more than $30 million. Woods was served with the second complaint on Monday, we are told, and in it, Herman is trying to free herself from a non-disclosure agreement that she signed back in 2017. She's citing the Speak Out Act that became law in December 22, December 2022. That's the federal law that prohibits the enforceability of an NDA if cases of sexual assault or sexual harassment arise after someone has signed it. So for more on this fascinating conversation, I want to bring in Jeff Benedict, who is the co-author of the biography Tiger Woods, and civil rights attorney and advocate Nancy Erica Smith, who is best known for settling Gretchen Carlson's sexual harassment suit against Fox News and Roger Ailes. The two of you together, kind of like this powerhouse panel to talk about this. It's so good amazing. to see both of you. Good Thank morning. Thank you. Good morning. Um, good morning. Let's start with you, Jeff. What do you what do you make of all of this? Well, I think it's it's interesting to think about just these two things. We're talking about NDAs and trusts. And this is really about at the heart of this is a story about an athlete, a very prominent world famous athlete. And those NDAs and trusts are things you typically don't use in sentences when we're talking about sports. And I think Tiger is someone who's transcended athletics for so long. He's, he's a worldwide figure. He's one of the most recognizable people on the planet. And there's a level of sophistication around him that most athletes never get near. Um, and I think that's part of what you're seeing here is that it's the wealth, the fame, the fortune that he's had, not for a little while, but for a long while, since he was really, since he was a teenager. And part of that's what's playing out here. NDAs are something that we ran into relentlessly when we were writing the biography of Tiger Woods. Almost everybody we approached for an interview had signed one. And it it, it makes it complicated if you're trying to do that kind of research. But so that part doesn't surprise me. The fact that there were NDAs signed, I mean, that's pretty typical um, status quo for Tiger. Just quickly, how many people would you say had said that they had signed an NDA? I don't know if I could give you a number. I'm telling you That that, that almost everybody... I mean, I'm not just talking about women. I mean, women had signed them, but all kinds of people, housekeeper, almost anybody who was in his orbit had signed an NDA. And so I'm saying that part of this story is not unusual and didn't surprise me at all. I've just been watching your face as he's been talking. I want to hear what you think. That's it. Well, I think NDAs are abusive. You shouldn't be able to commodify somebody's own life. To say to somebody you can't describe your own experiences in your own life 
while the other person can say whatever they want about you, which is what's happening here, this is a specific allegation of Ms. Herman, that he's out there saying whatever he wants, and she's bound by an NBA, NDA, and he's dragged her into arbitration, which is always secret. NDAs are what allowed Harvey Weinstein to abuse women for 30 years. NDAs allowed Roger Ailes to do it. They're usually used in an unequal power relationship where somebody with power says to somebody without power, your own life experience is now my property now. Uh, And the Speak Out Act was passed because it's allowed perpetrators of, of sexual harassment and sexual abuse to continue to have victim after victim after victim. So that's why the Speak Out Act passed. Unfortunately, it only applies to pre-dispute signing of an NDA, which, in fact, she did in this case. Ms. Herman worked in his restaurant. She was both an employee. She was an employee. It doesn't change it because she's an employee, but it makes it more complicated because she's an employee. And she did sign it clearly pre-dispute, five years pre-dispute, five years before he allegedly tricked her to get her out of the house and brought her, said she was going on a vacation. But no one can, I don't think anyone can dispute what you're saying, but what if someone is, if you are a a person of note, right, a high profile person and you have someone just say coming in doing work for you or what have you, you don't want them disclosing conversations that happen in your home or private things that they may see in your home. Do you understand what I'm saying? I absolutely understand it. If she was showing his checkbook to people or things that are totally private, not about her experiences, but to own somebody else's own life. And she's describing how she was treated, her photographs, her videos, her family events. To own somebody else's own life, to me, is wrong. Mm -hmm. You know him really well. I mean, you've interviewed him. You've interviewed people around him. You've written books on him. He has been through, I mean, his, his whole life is just such a fascinating thing. But also recently, you know, he had the car accident. He's been trying to make this comeback. Um, what, do you, what do you reflect on when you think about him as a person navigating this situation? Well, I think it's really hard for, uh, for people to, and I'll include myself when I say people, I'm in that group of people. It's really difficult to put yourself in the shoes of someone like Tiger Woods and, and truly understand what it's like to, to be him. And so there's a lot of things that happen in his life that as outsiders, you look and go, what? Why? And to me, the, the presence of NDAs, I don't find surprising. I mean, sort of to Don's point, I actually think in his case, asking people to sign NDAs as they enter his orbit is understandable um, because there's a lot of people who enter his orbit and you don't know uh, what their intentions are. That's right. It's, there's, a, there's a level, I'm not making an excuse here, I'm just saying, there's a level of complexity around that level of celebrity that is not normal even for star athletes. And there's only a few people. It, Tiger, to me, is much more like a showbiz entertainer at the very top. He's one of the most recognizable people on the planet. So we quickly realized, like, right down to the housekeeper or the person who comes over to walk his and Elon's dogs is signing an NDA. It's, it's partly because he's got sophisticated lawyers around him, agents that most people don't have. They're the ones who produce these documents and ask people to sign them. It is a little bit different than the Harvey Weinstein situation where women are being asked to sign NDAs on the back end after a bad thing has happened and they enter into a settlement. Most of the time in this case, in Tiger's case, people are signing NDAs when they meet him 
or when they go into business with him or they enter some kind of relationship with him. That's what happened here. I'm not saying it's a good or bad thing, but it's a little different. Because you don't want people to profit off of potentially come in and profit off of your personal. Well, partly that, but also, Don, I think we have to remember where Tiger's been. I mean, that what he went through in 08, 9, 10, his own making. I mean, this was a situation that he created. But the aftermath of that mess that was made, we saw one of the most public spectacles for a, a professional athlete in the world that we've ever seen. This isn't a housekeeper. Yeah, this isn't a housekeeper. This is an intimate relationship he had with a woman. Uh, Having her sign an NDA about her own experiences in that relationship is very different than saying the housekeeper shouldn't reveal what the kids uh, got on their homework. I don't don't disagree with you. I'm not saying it's the same as that. I was just trying to say it's different than Harvey Weinstein. It's nuanced. Yeah. 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 Kind of par for the course for him. Yeah. And we do. Thank you both. Thank we appreciate you. it. Thank we you. do need to say that CNN reached out to uh, Woods representatives for a comment, but did not immediately receive a response. Jeff Benedict, again, Nancy, Erica, Smith, thank you so thank much. You. Good to see you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, also this morning, the FDA has now updated its regulations for mammograms. This is the first time this has happened in 20 years. What does it mean for you? What does it mean for your health? We're going to tell you next. This morning, the FDA is announcing new regulations for mammograms for the first time in 20 years. Your mammogram report is now going to include information about breast density, which is really important because apparently women, according to science and their studies with dense breasts, are at a higher risk for breast cancer, actually, and dense tissue can make it harder to detect cancer in these mammograms. Joining us now is the chief of breast surgery at Mount Sinai Health System, Dr. Elisa Port, who better than to break this down. Okay, so what are they looking at? What are they changing? Why is this such a a thing that they haven't considered before but need to now? Sure. So I think it's important to know that some of it has changed, but some of it is not. Understand that starting in 2009, a number of states have already enacted legislation about informing patients of their breast density or informing their doctors. What the FDA is now doing, and we're now up to 38 states that have legislation. What the FDA is doing is saying now everyone has to do it. All states have to do this. And more importantly, Caitlin, we have to inform the patients themselves. So it's a much more consistent and uniform regulation. Yeah, so they're looking at these regulations. This is what we're going to see be different, right? Right, so number one, the patients themselves have to hear about their breast density. And that's going to be in the form of an added paragraph of text in the person's mammogram report that they receive. Okay. Um, number two, it has to explain how de- de- breast density can influence the accuracy of a mammogram. And I guess we'll talk about that in a minute with our pictures showing that if a woman has a lot of density, it can make it more difficult to pick up a, a cancer. And she should consider doing additional types of tests that may that may prevent that missing and obviously this makes this more of a national initiative rather than a state by state kind of uh, decision yeah and so 
strengthening their oversight, it, it just means basically making sure all states are on the same and page. Compliant. And compliant. It's a regulatory compliance. Yeah, you don't want to be different. You know, breast cancer is not different state to state. You don't want to be, to di- to be different. Okay, I'm fascinated yes. by all of this because I didn't really know much about this until Katie Couric came out with her story talking sure. about this and how uh, much of an issue it was. So what are the doctors looking for? Here? Sure. So as you can see here, Um, as the uh, map says, less dense tissue shows up as darker on a mammogram. More dense tissue shows up as whiter, okay? A cancer is usually a white ball or little white speckles on a mammogram. So it's really easy to imagine how a white ball or white speckles against this background, the the proverbial polar bear in a snowstorm situation, would be difficult to pick up compared to something like that. So it's a, it's a hidden, hidden kind of effect where the cancer may not be seen as easily on this type of dense mammogram. Yeah. I mean, given your role, has this just been a long time coming? You know, I, you know for us, those of us who are in the trenches trying to, it's all about saving lives. And it's very important for people to know that mammograms do save lives by picking up cancers earlier. And equally as importantly, they save lives while doing less. You know, if you find a cancer earlier, you're way more likely to be able to have smaller surgery, okay, which some women would much prefer. You're way less likely to need more aggressive treatment like chemotherapy. So saving lives and picking up cancers earlier is our number one goal. It always has been. And if this leads more women, number one, to get mammograms, and number two, to get additional tests they might meet, they might need if mammograms miss something, it's a win. Yeah, absolutely. Dr. Elisa Port, thank you for explaining all of that. I think thank that is you. such critical information, and thank you for breaking it all down for us thank and you. using the magic wall for the first time. We'll bring you back on election night. Thank you. <laughs> I'm, all, I'm all tutored up now. Okay. <laughs> thank you so much. Okay, also this morning, the cartel that is believed to be responsible for the armed kidnapping of four Americans. This is a development we've been tracking all week here. Now appears to be saying, sorry, what's inside the alleged apology that's ahead? Plus this new video of an incredible rescue out of Minneapolis. It was like, okay guys, the house is on fire. We need to get out. Come on, get out, get down, get down, get down. You're gonna hear from the officer who was just three days on the job when he helped save an elderly couple from their burning home. More CNN this morning to come after the break. Two Minneapolis police officers are being recognized for thinking fast and literally running into danger after finding themselves the first to arrive to a burning home. They sprang into action without a single thread of protective gear. CNN's Adrian Broadus has their story in this week's Beyond the Call of Duty. As smoke from a burning home in Minneapolis filled the sky. They didn't even know the house was on fire. A couple in their 80s was in danger. It was a two-alarm fire. But before this fire crew arrived. Police, anyone in here, call out! Officer Zachary Randall and Jamal Mitchell were finishing a call nearby. They were the first to respond. Start me fire, or start me EMS. I got someone upstairs calling for help. There was confusion. I mean, it was like, okay, guys, the house is on fire. We need to get out. Come on, now. Get down, get down, get down, get down. Get down. Okay, get out. I remember stepping in that house and just seeing a thick cloud of smoke, not being able to breathe normally. Are you get down, get down. 
That's okay. So I just kind of grabbed her by her hands and I just kind of helped her down the stairwell. Are you alone, Bill? No, my husband's right behind me. So that was lucky too that he was right behind her on that because I don't know how we would have found anyone. Uh, much less without respirators or any of the fire equipment. Police officers are not trained to run into fires. They are not equipped with the protective equipment and breathing apparatus to go into a fire. We're not trained to run into fires, but we are trained to pit others' lives in front of ours. So when we found out possibly that someone was uh, in that house, it, we didn't second guess running into make sure no one was in there. I mean, three days before Officer Mitchell was in this situation, I had literally just sworn him in as a police officer. So he was brand new. Every day on the street from Minneapolis, yes. You know, I'm incredibly thankful for Officers Randall and Mitchell and just impressed. And so is the fire chief, Brian Tyner, who said it took two hours to fight this fire, which is now an arson investigation. And witnesses actually saw somebody throw an incendiary device through the window. Flames burned through the roof, leaving this massive hole. Oh, it could have been pretty tragic. I mean, it honestly could have resulted in a fire death. We're very fortunate that they were where they were. Okay. I think we were fortunate enough to be in the, in the right spot at the right time on someone's most unfortunate day, and we were just able to help someone out. Is there anyone else in the house, guys? No. Adrian Broadus, CNN, Minneapolis. Running towards danger. Yeah, amazing story. CNN This Morning continues right now. Michael Cohn. Michael's my an attorney, and you'll have to ask Michael Cohn. Do you know Well, they did ask Michael Cohen, right? There are so many seminal moments from the Trump presidency, but that simple question is one of them because yeah. it was a moment that was on camera and now it's been used so many times. Yeah, you're right. That, that moment stands out to everyone on the plane. And Were you on the plane when they did that? Video? No, that was a, a pool for, I think it was Catherine Lucy who did it. It was amazing. I wonder if people were shocked. I think they were when he came back and actually answered that question. Well, because it, we've seen how it's played out in cases in the past, how it may be playing out now. Good morning, everyone. Poppy, as you can see, is off here today. What Don and I are talking about, after these years of denials, there is new reporting from the New York Times that former President Trump may soon face criminal charges in that Stormy Daniels hush case that he was being asked about there. Plus, it's a big story as well. The national divide over abortion pills deepening. It is a battle playing out in pharmacies all across America. A coalition of Democratic governors are fighting to protect access, including New York's Governor Kathy Hochul. The governor's gonna join us live in just a moment here on CNN This Morning. Also this morning, there is no relief for California as another massive storm is bearing down as millions are bracing for major flooding. Towns have already been buried under feet of snow right now, preparing for even more. But we're gonna start this morning here in New York City where we were just talking about this story and there is now a possible indication that former President Trump could soon face criminal charges. Now this is not guaranteed, we should note, but the New York Times is reporting that the Manhattan District Attorney's Office is signaling charges against Trump are likely 
over those hush money payments to the adult film actress Stormy Daniels. According to The Times, prosecutors have offered Trump the chance to testify next week before the grand jury that has been hearing evidence in the case, seeing some of his former closest allies go before them. Such offers almost always indicate that an indictment is potentially likely. But this case, we should note, is not a slam dunk. It could actually pose a huge challenge for prosecutors. Our senior legal affairs correspondent, Paula Reed, has been tracking this case with us all morning. Paula, we know that Trump's attorneys have gone in and met with the district attorney, but the idea that he himself is going to go in and testify seems incredibly unlikely. It does seem incredibly unlikely, doesn't it, Caitlin? But over the past few weeks, you know, we have seen uh, this parade of high-profile witnesses going to testify before the grand jury. We've seen Hope Hicks, Kellyanne Conway. This investigation's been going on for five years, and there is clearly some uptick in activity. But the idea that the former president would be the next high-profile witness to stroll into the courthouse, extremely unlikely. Last night in a statement, his spokesman described this whole thing as, quote, insane. But the the fact that an invitation has been extended for him to come before the grand jury signals that the investigation is likely wrapping up and it's possible there could be an indictment here. Okay, so there could be an indictment, but even if there is, I think it's important to be realistic about what that could yeah. look like. If, if, if he's indicted, it doesn't mean he's going to be convicted. It doesn't mean he's facing prison time. What, what are the stakes? What does it mean? Because it is kind of this complicated legal theory here of what he would actually be charged with. Look, the stakes couldn't be higher. An unprecedented indictment of a former president. And this case, uh, to be generous, it's, it's messy. Look, we're talking about something that happened seven years ago, approximately. At its core, it is a paperwork crime. The question is not about an extramarital affair. It's not really even about the hush money payments. It's about whether business records were falsified when Michael Cohen was paid back the money that he had given to Stormy Daniels. This is a novel legal theory in New York. This is something that is mostly untested. And at the center of this case would be Michael Cohen, a convicted liar who has publicly, uh, repeatedly insisted that he wants to see the former president charged and brought to justice. I mean, even Cohen's close associates tell me that they really think it would be best if this case, or for their friend Cohen, it would be best if this case didn't go forward and if he just moved on with his life. Any good defense attorney is going to seize on that. So this would be a very complicated case to prove. And as you know, Caitlin, you and I have reported on the former president for a long time. Every investigation he faces, he argues this is politically motivated. And if they were to bring this case under this political pressure and fail, that would really arguably undermine the credibility of a lot of other, much stronger, more legitimate cases. Yeah, it's a really good point. It's hard to believe this inquiry has spanned five years. Paula Reed, I know you'll stay on top of it. Thank you. So New York's governor and attorney general urging Walgreens, CVS and Rite Aid to commit to dispensing prescribed abortion medication uh, both in store and by mail. Last week, Walgreens said that it would not offer the drug in 21 states, including handful where abortion remains legal. That came after GOP attorneys general in those states challenged the legality of medication uh, abortions. A letter from the New York governor and attorney general says, in part, even as access to this medication is under threat elsewhere for political reasons, we remind you that New York's law is simple. Abortion is legal and protected as a fundamental right under state law, and there are no legal barriers to dispensing mefeprestone in New York pharmacies. New York's governor, Kathy Hochul, joins us now. Governor, thank you so much. I appreciate you joining us. 
So, Governor, let's just uh, quickly, because it was the last story that we did, and then I'm going to talk to you extensively about mefepristone, but can, do you have a response to what's happening uh, with Alvin Bragg's office and the former president, as uh, Caitlin was just discussing with Paula Reed? Well, of course, the, the uh, district attorney must have the evidence necessary to be pursuing this way he is. And I have confidence in his ability to bring Donald Trump to justice. This is a is occurring in so many courts and so many venues because basically he's been a, he was a corrupt president. And so I, I encourage the uh, district attorney to pursue all means possible to bring this individual to justice once and for all. Governor, thank you for responding to that. Now let's talk about mifeprestone here. Uh, as you state in your letter, abortion is legal in New York. So why send it to the pharmacies? We have to because basically pharmacies have become the new battleground ever since women's rights were stripped in the overturning of Roe v. Wade last June. So we want to make sure we send a preemptive message that despite the threats that you're receiving from Republican attorneys general, that here in states like New York, these rights are protected. We're going to go to the mat and protect them every inch of the way. And if they try to suspend the distribution of this important drug to women in the state of New York, there'll be consequences. I wonder, do you worry about this? Because this is something um, that Democrats have been very critical of. Similar issues. It's not the same, but similar. Been critical of Republicans, especially governors like Ron DeSantis, for getting involved with businesses and trying to influence how businesses operate. Are you concerned that this might have the same sort of result or effect or be seen uh, in a similar way? There's no comparison. This is not a uh, launch to a political campaign. This has nothing to do with politics. This is basic women's health care. And we want people to make sure that they know that this is a sacrosanct right here in the state of New York. It once was in our nation until the Trump-stacked Supreme Court stripped these rights away from women. And I want to make sure that despite what happens in other states, there's not a distraction. These rights are protected in the state of New York. A federal judge in Texas is set to rule on on a case brought by anti-abortion groups who seek to block the FDA's approval of this drug altogether. About half of all abortions in this country are medication abortions. What is your plan if the judge blocks the drug, Governor? This is so abhorrent at every level. I mean, like you said, half of all abortions are provided through this drug It is legal, it is safe, and we want to make sure that women have access to this. This often can be a way that women can save their lives. I mean, this is what we're talking about here. So we'll make sure that we pursue every remedy available to us to make sure that women in the state of New York at least are protected. But it is heartbreaking to see that this is the fallout of a decision that never should have happened last June, where a right that my mother's generation fought for I fought for that my daughter enjoys right now will not be there for my baby granddaughter. So this is the stakes we're talking about here. And Attorney General James and I have stood up and said our voices need to be heard and not overshadowed by attorneys general and and anti-choice extremists who have really been dominating the debate. We're in this fight for the long haul. Yeah, I know this is something uh, that you have been discussing and that's important to you even before um, your run Um, just last year and winning, according to NYPD, crime was up by more than 4% overall in in New York City in January. Murders were down slightly, but robberies, assaults, burglary, car theft, all up. What action are you going to take in this rise in in crime uh, in these these other categories besides murder and and rape? 
Public safety is absolutely my number one priority. It's top of mind for all New Yorkers. And I'm working closely with Mayor Adams to help provide resources to protect people in the subway, supporting our NYPD and their work. Subway crimes are down rather dramatically since we started our concerted effort, so that's an important part of it. But we're not finished. I have put in a record amount of money to support district attorneys, to support law enforcement, diversion programs. So we're making a difference, but we're nowhere near satisfied with the rates. But in comparison to other big cities and other states, New York is the safest big state in America. New York City is the safest city in America, large city. But I know that doesn't mean a thing to anyone who has that sense of concern and fear, something that New Yorkers deserve to be free from. And that's what I'm going to continue fighting for. Part of it is in my budget, which I expect to get through in the next few weeks. Resources that will be there to support uh, getting people with mental health problems, the support they need so they don't live on our streets. Sometimes that's a cause of fear as well. And continuing to fight all the crimes from the petty crimes on up to the serious homicides. We take this very seriously in the state of New York. Governor, we appreciate um, having you. Listen, before you go, I just want to ask you um, something that I, I, I think that you would want to respond to. I have to ask you about, recently we had on um, investor and Shark Tank personality, Kevin O'Leary, and he said about New York that it was no longer, the state was uninvestable. And I'm sure you would like to respond to that. Oh, boy. I just sat down with major investors and uh, prominent business leaders a couple of days ago, and they are, they are enthusiastic about the future of New York. New York has always had its ups and downs. We are emerging from a dark time brought forth by the pandemic. That's it. We are on fire right before the pandemic hit, but there's no stopping us. And I think if you want to look for evidence of that, just ask the CEO of Micron, bringing 50,000 jobs to the state of New York that could have gone to a place like Texas. And they're coming to New York because of our business climate, how we have the most educated, highly skilled workforce, a quality of life that is second to none. So uh, there's a lot of people who have a very strong disagreement with those sentiments. All right. The governor of the great state of New York, Kathy Hochul, thank you for joining us this morning. Have a good weekend. Thank you. You too. Good to have her respond to what Kevin O'Leary said. Also this morning, more than 17 million people are facing flood threats in California and Nevada this morning. It's this atmospheric river, as it's known. It is bringing heavy rain, potentially pretty rapid snow melt after weeks of storms in those areas. It compounds flood issues for many, especially the California coast. Governor Gavin Newsom has announced a state of emergency for 21 more counties. That adds to the 13 from last week. Sacramento County is one of those where CNN's Natasha Chen is joining us live from there. Natasha, what are what are the biggest concerns that officials there are bracing for right now with this expected storm? Caitlin, it's really about flooding, uh, especially in the foothills and in areas that already flooded in January from this string of storms then. Uh, and it's also about structural collapses. I do want to mention that we are right outside the state aquatic center here. Uh, the gates are closed because it's still very early in the morning. But behind us is the Nimbus Dam. And this is one of the dams that is releasing thousands and thousands of cubic feet of water per second today uh, to try and manage the flooding that may be happening in rivers and creeks and levees uh, downstream. Uh, th this is a place that we 
see a lot of water being released, uh, usually when that flood management needs to happen. Uh, so we're watching for that. Now, the structural collapse, as I mentioned, here's an example. Here's some photos from a Facebook post from a Christian private school in Nevada City. Now, this collapse of their school gym happened last weekend, but it was just posted yesterday. An example of what happens when the heavy snow that's accumulated on rooftops from all these past storms now are mixed with this rain that's coming in and it's just too heavy and uh, this is a big risk for structural collapse. Um, we're hearing from our affiliates, KOVR, that uh, there was another such collapse in Grass Valley uh, from this storm this time. Um, we're also hearing about the Kasumnas River uh, that may flood and crest by tomorrow morning and there's a community of Wilton near there. Uh, they already experienced levee breaches from the New Year's storm, so they are concerned about flooding there again. So for a lot of Californians, including them, this is deja vu. This is another storm. Quite a winter they've had here, Caitlin. Yeah, it's remarkable to see what they've been living through. Quite a nightmare for them. Natasha Chen, thank you. Well, this morning, the Mexican cartel that is believed to be responsible for the armed kidnapping of American tourists now saying, sorry, Gulf Cartel handed over five of its members to local authorities with an alleged apology letter, which CNN obtained a version of, reading in part, quote, the Gulf Cartel Scorpion Group strongly condemns the events of last Friday. For this reason, we decided to hand over those directly involved and responsible for the acts, who at all times acted under their own determination and indiscipline and against the rules in which the Gulf cartel always operates. Now, sources tell CNN investigators believe the letter is authentic. The bodies of Shahid Woodward and Zadell Brown, the two Americans killed in the kidnapping, have been delivered to U.S. diplomatic authorities. The two survivors have returned to the U.S. for treatment at a hospital. A group of friends from South Carolina drove to Matamoros, Mexico last Friday, so one of them could get a medical procedure. Investigators believe they were mistaken for drug smugglers. I want to bring in now CNN's chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst, John Miller. John, good morning to you. This is odd, this cartel apologizing and then turning over its own members. What do you make of that? So this is almost unheard of. Uh, turning over five street soldiers from the cartel without a fight to the government and, you know, kind of taping a letter of apology to it. You believe it's authentic? They say I, they do. I do. And I think it'll be easy to figure out fairly quickly, which is when you turn over those five bodies, the Mexican authorities and the U.S. authorities, you know, we've seen the attack on videotape. We can identify who those people are. There's human sources who know who were involved. So... Um, it's entirely likely that these are the actual persons responsible. And the letter, the letter is bizarre. It's almost bureaucratic in its terms. I mean, they talk about things like uh, society needs to be calm because we are committed to make sure that these errors are not repeated. You know, it sounds like a, a note from a railroad that had a bad derailment or something. This was out of policy and we are working to fix this. So where does the investigation go from here? Because, and I want to get you to respond to something we're hearing from lawmakers too, but on the investigation front, they're questioning these people. What does that look like? So the Mexican authorities have these people in custody. They're going to question them. We're already kind of seeing the what's next, which is Matamoros has been flooded with hundreds of Mexican soldiers. So what we're seeing, Caitlin, is fascinating because it's a state of two governments the Mexican government and the cartel government. The cartel is asserting itself by saying, we made an error, here are the bad guys, here's a note, we're sorry. 
They're trying to get this back in the bottle. The government is saying, here are the soldiers, we're reasserting security, the area is safe for tourists again, and the government is here. So what about this idea that we're hearing from Republican lawmakers is they want the U.S. military to go in and combat these cartels. Is that realistic in your view? Well, it's been done before. It's all a it's a it's a question of style, not substance. I mean, the U.S. military and intelligence community and law enforcement community banded together as a coalition to work with the government in Colombia when that was a country overrun by cartels and work that problem till it was under control. Uh, it's a very different Colombia today than it was in the 80s. On the other hand, Mexican nationalism under President Obrador is a big issue. Uh, the idea that we are our own state, we are in control, and that you know, big brother from next door does not need to come in and take over our problems um, is gonna make that something that could happen, but it would all have to be behind the scenes. It would not be uniformed U.S. troops in large numbers in Mexico if the Mexican government has anything to say about it. Watch this space to be continued, as I say. Thank you very much, John Miller. Thanks. Thanks, John. And also our next guest cares a lot about this, wants these cartels to be designated as terrorist organizations. This all comes as the potential 2024 Republican field appears to be taking shape. Could our next guest jump in the race? We're going to ask him. Former governor of Arkansas, Asa Hutchinson, joins us next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This morning, the potential field for the 2024 GOP presidential nomination is beginning to take shape, but the key word is potential. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is making his first appearance in Iowa today, months ahead of his expected formal announcement. Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin, who has also not announced an official run, sent a message to voters last night on public education in a CNN town hall. As for those who have announced, we're hearing from Nikki Haley. She's calling to change the retirement age for Social Security benefits at an Iowa town hall yesterday. Meanwhile, former President Trump, who is currently the presumptive frontrunner, is also going to Iowa on Monday as we are seeing new reporting that suggests he might also be facing an indictment in the case of the hush money payments to the adult film star Stormy Daniels. A lot of developments going on. So joining us now is former Republican governor of Arkansas, who is also himself said to be considering a White House run in 2024, Asa Hutchinson. Governor, thank you so much for being here this morning. I want to start with you on what we heard from Nikki Haley yesterday, talking about raising the, uh, the retirement age, talking about for people who are now in their 20s. Do you agree with her on that? Well, first of all, we want to strengthen Social Security, not to weaken it. It is so incredibly important to uh, those that have paid into the system. They want to have confidence in it. And so uh, it should be off the table in terms of, of cuts to that, in terms of dismantling that or changing it or even privatizing it. People need to have confidence in that system. Whenever you look at uh, the entitlement programs, as they call them, Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, we've got to protect the uh, all three, but the Medicaid part is one that can be used to save additional money and reduce those costs of that entitlement by returning more authority to the states to manage those programs. That's the one I think we should focus on uh, in the future first. But what does strengthening Social Security look like to you? Because I, I feel like I hear that from a lot of Republicans, but what does that mean, changing the age or means testing benefits for, for other things? What does that look like? 
Well, making sure that we have enough workers paying into the system, actuarially looking at it to make sure it's sound for the future. Uh, we've had uh, some commissions before, and maybe we need another commission that that looks at it and to say, what can we do to strengthen it? What do we need to do to make sure that it's viable for the future? Let's just talk about the age uh, part of it for a moment. You know, there's some people that's in a white collar job in a profession that can work for an extended period of time perhaps, but how about uh, that uh, blue collar worker that's working in the factory that's so tough on their body, I don't think you want to extend uh, their uh, re work requirement so that they have to wait longer for Social Security. That is the problem in adjusting uh, the age limit across the board. So uh, I don't think that that's a wise idea. I think that we need to have a commission that looks at it as to how we can strengthen it and develop some bipartisan support for that. Okay, good to hear you say that you disagree with that. I want to ask you about something else that I know you care about, which is what we've seen happening out of Mexico. We were just talking about the letter, this alleged apology letter from the cartel. We've seen some Republicans say that the U.S. military should be used to, to combat these cartels. You said you believed that they should be designated as foreign terrorist organizations. We heard from the White House yesterday saying that they don't believe it would actually grant them additional authorities. They basically don't see a benefit in that. Do you disagree? And what would the actual benefits be? Well, I disagree completely. First of all, they meet the definition of a foreign terrorist organization. Uh, they're engaged in kidnapping. They have packed our national security. Uh, the fentanyl that comes in the United States is a national security risk, and the cartels control that. Designate them. The White House, when it says it doesn't give us more tools, first of all, they're wrong. Uh, but secondly, if it doesn't do any harm, it does a benefit because it draws attention to the fact that they are a national security risk. We use that tool in reference to uh, other terrorist organizations. Columbia has been talked about. I was engaged as head of the DEA in fighting uh, the terrorist organizations in Colombia. We have been successful. We've been successful going against the cartels in Mexico. We need to re-engage them and elevate them as a concern and designating a national terrorist organization or a foreign terrorist organization would do exactly that. Do you think that military force should be used to combat the cartels? U.S. military well, force? Uh, your, your previous guest uh, was very close to uh, being right on point that we ought to use them for intelligence purposes. We need to uh, uh, work with Mexico on it. But if you use your military to go in without authority, that becomes an invasion. And so in Colombia's instance, we had the cooperation of the Colombian authorities as we used our military resources. So uh, we have to make sure that we coordinate this. We've got to use economic pressure on Mexico to be more supportive of going after the cartel. Where they are right now is unacceptable. They're saying the cartel has a blank uh, opportunity to operate with impunity in Mexico, and that is insufficient because it puts us at risk, and the military, certainly from an intelligence standpoint, and others need to be utilized. Governor, moving on to what's happening here at home, we are now hearing reporting that Trump may be facing criminal charges here in New York. He said recently at a conservative conference he won't drop out of the presidential race, even if he is indicted. Do you think if he is indicted, he should drop out? 
Well, I think the important question is, uh, how do you have different leadership than Donald Trump? And he's made it clear whether he's indicted or not, he's going to continue on. And so the only way to beat Donald Trump is to beat him at the ballot box. And that's why we need to have alternatives uh, when it comes to who's going to represent the Republican Party, who's going to potentially be our next president. And we need to have alternative voices. I'm pleased that I get encouragement for that. We'll make a decision down the road. But uh, in terms of, of the chaos that's surrounding uh, Donald Trump and his uh, candidacy, uh, that's not the future of the Republican Party. That's not the leadership that we need in our country. You have said that you're going to make a decision in April on whether or not you're running for president. If you do, obviously, you'd hope to be on the debate stage. The chair of the Republican National Committee says if you're on that debate stage, you will have to sign a pledge saying that you will support the eventual nominee. Are you going to sign that pledge and will you support Trump if he's the nominee? Well, we'll wait and see what the uh, pledge provides. Uh, the wording is important. And uh, I don't expect Donald Trump to be the nominee. I want to make sure that we have alternative voices to his leadership. What is important for the party is that we don't have somebody participating in the debate that then goes out there and runs as an independent or a third party candidate. You can avoid that very simply, and I'd be happy to sign a pledge saying uh, we're not going to uh, be a third party candidate. And that accomplishes the goal of the Republican Party. We don't need loyalty oaths. That's been uh, something I've been opposed to from a Democrat Party loyalty oath and certainly not a Republican Party loyalty oath. We need okay. to really focus on what's best for America. So you want that pledge to look differently than what Ronna McDaniel has said, which is that you would support the nominee. You want it to say you won't run as a third party candidate. Governor Asa Hutchinson, we look forward to when you make your decision uh, and come back here when you do, please. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Great to be with you today. Thank you so much. Interesting. Caitlin, he doesn't think that he's going to be the nominee. I think that's news. I think Trump's going to be the nominee. Yeah, yeah we'll see. Yeah. Time will tell. Okay, well, coming up soon, the February jobs report will be released. We're going to break down the numbers and the impact. This has an immediate effect on everything, right? You, our lives, everything. Just in the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, just announcing how many jobs were added to the economy in February Christine Roman's here with the numbers. So a lot this, of hiring. Is this good or bad? If you are looking for a job, it's good. If you have a job and you're job hopping, it's good. Um, it is a strong job market. 311,000 jobs added. And we know it was a blockbuster report in January. That was revised down a little bit to 504,000. That's still a very, very big number. Um, this shows you that businesses are hiring. Despite those headlines you've seen of tech companies that have been, you know, um, laying people off, they hired a lot during the pandemic. Despite those headlines, this is a very, very strong job market. 3.6% is the unemployment rate. It went up a little bit. That's because um, about 400,000 people came off the sidelines and started looking for work. So that's an unemployment rate rising for a good reason. People are hearing from friends. They know that there are plentiful jobs. And so they're out looking for work now. And then the sectors, um, guys, the leisure and hospitality, hiring a lot of people, retail, government jobs. So uh, there, we broke them all out for you. A lot of, just a lot of jobs across the board. So it's good for employees, bad for employers, bad for the Fed. <sighs> yeah. Bad so for Wall Street. So a good economy could eventually be bad news for Americans because it means the Fed has to continue to oh. raise interest rates. You've got wages up 4.6%. That's great. I mean, people's paychecks are unequivocally bigger, but it's 
feeding into the inflation story. And so the Fed thinks that inflation staying too high is more dangerous than maybe trying to cool off the job market a little bit. So, I know, it's it's upside down. Well, it's weird because everybody I talked to, and they said just yesterday I was having breakfast with a bunch of folks, and they said, Don, we're so confused when you guys talk about the economy and you get the new jobs numbers and the stock market, whatever, everything's going gangbusters. But yet it's bad. How, what do I, I don't know what to say to them. You know, it's, it's interesting because we kind of broke all the, the models after COVID. And so we're trying, we have a very confusing picture of the economy. The underlying strength of the economy over the past six weeks has been undeniable. The consumer, uh, retail sales, the job market, and inflation is still too high. All of this is a function of a, of a strong recovery in the economy. And while that is good news, it feels like good news, if it feeds into inflation and inflation gets entrenched, then that slows growth and then that can cause a recession. And the question, everyone who's paying close attention to this, not just us, it's the White House. Our senior White House correspondent, MJ Lee, is on the lawn. MJ, obviously they are always looking closely to this. You reported they were looking for this Goldilocks number. They got a lot higher than Goldilocks. It's way more than expected. What's the reaction you're hearing so far? Yeah, Caitlin, you know, the number that White House officials had really been hoping to see was something in the mid 200. So you're right that this is a little bit uh, bigger than that. But I can uh, I suspect that they're going to be pretty pleased with this. You know, that Goldilocks number that we talk about, uh, they wanted something that wasn't too big, like like what we saw in the month of January when the economy added more than 500,000 jobs. Uh, That was frankly shocking to a lot of economists. But they obviously also always want to see uh, strength and robustness in the job market. And so much of this has to do with being on uh, Federal Reserve Watch. They knew and very much took note uh, inside the building behind me when Jerome Powell said in recent days and suggested that if there are more indicators that the jobs market is just too hot, that the labor market is too hot, that, yeah, the central bank could bring back more aggressive interest rate hikes. Uh, That's not something that the White House wants to see. But at the same time, this has almost sort of been a good problem for the White House to have. Uh, You know, they know that uh, the labor market being too strong and being too hot uh, can lead to more aggressive interest rate hikes. But at the same time, they're always going to say, look, more jobs being added, more paychecks going out to Americans. That is essentially a good thing. And, you know, I don't have to tell you the issue of the economy, the issue of inflation. uh, Those are some of the most important political issues for this White House and for Democrats heading into 2024. So they're always going to sort of root for strength in the jobs market. And they do basically feel like they have a good story to tell on the economy. But again, inflation is the one sort of intractable problem that this president has faced. And they very much want to see that trend uh, to continue in a downwards manner. Yeah, we'll see what President Biden says when he speaks out. MJ, Christine, thank you both so much for breaking down those massive, very hot jobs numbers today. Now the Oscars. I thought it was last weekend, actually. I was confused. Oh, come on. I did. I was like, well, the Oscars are this weekend. It's, it's this weekend, all right? The first since the infamous Chris Rock slap, how the show plans to address last year's drama and some fresh controversy this year. One of the best lines I heard, I read this week was, Okay, so I'm so out of it. I'm like, that's Lady Gaga? Lady Gaga up for another Academy Award this weekend. Will it be her second win for the best original song? This time for Top Gun Maverick. And will everything, everywhere, all at once keep up the awards momentum for every major category 
there's still time to catch up on the Oscar nominations. Not much, still a little time. Stephanie Elam joins us now from Los Angeles to preview the ceremony. Stephanie, hey, how are you? Um, I don't know, who's going, to, who's going to get the big win? I mean, there's so many questions here. I mean, Don, we know that there has been plenty of drama in the Dolby Theater when we've gone to Oscars. Of course, they would like for you to focus on the drama on the big screens. But just in case you forgot what happened last year and what they're looking to fix this year, watch this. And when we're done with this, we're going to be carpeting all of Hollywood. The Oscars are back. The first since the slap made Hollywood's biggest night the Academy's biggest nightmare. It still hurts! <laughs> Just a week after Chris Rock took aim at Will Smith... Second I saw Will Smith get up out of his seat, I'd have been halfway to the Wetzel's pretzels. All eyes will be on host Jimmy Kimmel, who says he will address the slap. You know, comedians are mad about it. It's one of those things that, for a group of people that find everything funny, it's, it's like not funny, you know? But, of course, it's, you know, you have to. The fallout also upends Oscar tradition since Smith won Best Actor last year. They have to find somebody to present Best Actress because typically the tradition is if you win Best Actor, you come back and you present Best Actress. But that's not gonna happen because he's banned from the show. This year's drama should come from the awards. Possible upsets? I've been an actress since I was 19. A late SAG award surge from Jamie Lee Curtis could lift her over supporting actress favorite, Angela Bassett. Neither veteran has ever won. What does that mean for you? You know what? It's just a clear example that you've got to hold on. I'm smiling and breathing. SAG and Critics' Choice winner Brendan Fraser will go down to the wire with Austin Butler for Best Actor. I'm ready. Ready to fly. The Elvis star won a BAFTA, the British Oscar, a bellwether since the Academy has welcomed more international voters. Denzel Washington said to me, you're about to work with a young actor, because he had just worked with him, whose work ethic is like no other. He was right. <laughs> if there's an Oscar shocker, it could be for Best Actress, where Michelle Yeoh is expected to win for Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. I am excited. I'm excited. Kate Blanchett's BAFTA win keeps her competitive, but the outlier is Andrea Riseborough, whose role as an alcoholic in the small film to Leslie led to a social media push inside Hollywood that won her a surprise nomination. She was allowed to remain a contender after an Academy investigation into the tactics of the campaign, a probe that upset some of Riseboro's supporters. There could be a protest vote that goes on here. And if there is a shocker on Oscar night, it's going to be if she wins. Okay, so in the spirit of the Academy Awards, the Oscars, Caitlin and Stephanie, your picks for best picture. Oh, Stephanie. I've got to go. I've got to go with what I've seen because I've been at all these award shows. Oh, oh my god! I gosh. think everything, everywhere, all at once. We picked it the out. same thing. Yeah. See, oh, look at your fancy font. That's a very nice font there you've got there. So, uh, yeah, thank Don. You. <laughs> no. It's oh, yeah. <laughs> I was like, no pig. Oh, that's dramatic. You know what? <laughs> that's very dramatic. Here's why. It's the only one I've seen. I saw it on the plane as when I was going to the Queen's funeral. It's the only one that I have I seen. I picked this one because one of the directors is from Alabama, the two Daniels. Yeah. And okay. he's amazing. And also, Michelle Yeoh is awesome. So. Yeah.
Also, I would just like to point out, we have some veteran actors who are up for winning big awards that they haven't won before. So it could be a really thrilling night for some of our favorites that we all have loved over the decades to see if they win on the champagne carpet as they walk down it on Sunday evening. I'm going to do two things real quick. Humble brag, I've been texting with Courtney B. Vance, and you know we love the wife. is amazing. You need to tell people who his wife is. Uh, you tell people who his wife is. Angela Bassett, who is up for <laughs> Wakanda Forever. She's up yeah. for that role. So she may win, or it could be now Jamie Lee Curtis from Everything Everywhere All at Once. We've seen that the, for all season long, it's been Angela Bassett, but yeah. we saw at the SAG Awards that uh, Jamie Lee Curtis won. So yeah. we're not sure, but, but both of those actors very much loved in Hollywood. The last time we covered, I don't know if it was the last time we covered, but the last Oscars that I actually attended in person, because remember I used to do the red carpet with you and then we'd do the after show was 2016 when Chris Rock, fun fact, was the host. (laughs) Interesting, right? I don't think we can expect to see Chris Rock again. I don't think he will be there at least this year. (laughs) Thanks, Steph. Good luck. We'll be watching. All right, the Oscars is not the only thing this weekend. Daylight Savings is going to make your Sunday scary. It's a little scarier this Sunday as you're watching the Oscars. Harry Anton is going to explain why this morning's number is 65. He's going to be on the red carpet. That's next. One of well, my all-time all- favorites. I love Cher. Well, don't play this weekend because you're not actually going to be turning back <laughs> the time. Instead, you're going to be turning it forward because the clocks are going forward. Daylight savings time is this Sunday, which means you're going to lose an hour of sleep. But oh. for the next couple of months, you'll have an extra hour of daylight, so it's totally worth it. This, of course, has been a big debate on Capitol Hill. Republican Senator Marco Rubio has reintroduced a bill that would make daylight savings time Permanent nationwide, which mean no more would mean no more changing back the clocks. But the question is, is that what people want? Is that what the Americans want? Harry Enten has looked into this for us and has this morning's number. Harry, what is it? Do people do people want this to be something that is actually passed by Congress? Yeah, so this morning's number is 65. 65% of Americans who dislike changing the clocks. Twice a year, I can tell you, I'm certainly one of them. I am not at all looking forward to losing an hour of sleep this weekend. It means one extra less hour of sleep, and it also means the weekend has one less hour in it. But here is the issue, Caitlin. Here is the issue. We can't agree on a solution. So Americans don't like changing the clocks, but they can't agree on a solution. Look, 38% want daylight saving time, no S, all year round. 26% want standard time all year round. And then there's 32% who like the current system, which is a minority. But the fact is, you got 38% who like daylight saving time all year round and standard time 26%. So the people who dislike changing the clocks, they can't actually agree on a solution. Interesting. I thought there was, I thought we were, it was going to be permanent, but maybe that was, I'm dreaming. I don't know. So then what about daylight saving time year round? Do you, I mean, I kind of like it. I like daylight saving all year. And you're right. Leave off the last S for saving. Yes. Look, here's the issue, Don. Here's the issue. We've done this before. We've tried year-round DST. We tried it during World War II. We tried in 1974. Majorities turned against it. Why? There's an aversion to late January sunrises. So let's say you go to Grand Rapids, Michigan, right, which is on the western extent of the eastern time zone. Kids would be going to school in the dark. The sun doesn't rise in early January in Grand Rapids, Michigan, until about 9, 12 a.m. on Sunday, on some days. So the fact is, it's very difficult. But 
Here's, I think, something that I would definitely note. Okay, let's, let's take a look at days with sunrises before 7.30 a.m. and sunsets after 5.30 p.m. This is a national average. So what's the best way to get a good amount of sun in the morning and then a good amount of sun in the afternoon? It turns out that 72% of the days, if you use standard time year-round, gives you a good amount of sun in the morning and in the late afternoon. The current system, 69%. In fact, the worst system for it would, in fact, be daylight saving time year-round. So people are pushing that, but the fact is there's a reason why people are dissatisfied with it when we've tried it before. Harry, say that again. If it is permanent, that's when it doesn't rise in Grand Rapids until 9 a.m., or that happens Correct. now? If we do, in fact, make daylight saving time year-round permanent, what we would find is in Grand Rapids, Michigan, in January, the sun wouldn't rise until after 9 a.m. And here, it wouldn't rise until after 8 a.m. No. on many days in January. I don't like that. I don't know. I just, I just, I, I'm anyway. still thinking about, I can't get over the fact that, especially us on this shift, we're going to lose an hour of sleep. Uh, I feel for you. <laughs> you're Hinton. on the shift too. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Harry Hinton, thank you, thank you. And thank you all for joining us this morning and this whole week. Have a good weekend. CNN Newsroom starts right after this break. That's it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.